welcome to another episode of the Crash Chords Podcast. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I'm John. I'm Steve. And here's an idea. Let me introduce our guest for the week, uh, Mr. Mike Regnetta. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you for coming back. I didn't scare you away when we did the one-on-one interview no, for quite, autographs. Quite the opposite. Oh, well, that's good. Just you mean I check. charmed you? You don't have that uh, little soundbite copyrighted, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you totally don't. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, considering anyone who knows you and what you do, you were kind of made for a guest for this show because of how analytical... You are on the Idea Channel, so oh. we're super excited to have you on. I mean, I'm excited to hear you guys talk about this thing, this record that I really like. So, I, you know. It is kind of a hymn fest. That, yeah. that's yeah. 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 Actually, no, it's the album fest. It's Let's an album fest, real about it. But while we're interviewing you at the top of the show, I did want to bring up really quickly some stuff that we did talk about on Autographs about the changes to the show and the dynamic of what we're talking about, of course, is the Idea Channel. Um, you recently added newer formats to the show, like But Wait, and all of these other kind of versions of the main program where you do things a little differently. Was that something that's been cooking for a while? Was that something that kind of was just a collaborative decision to make a shift in the show? Yeah, I think we're, we're you know, the show's been around for a little while now. It's been, a, you know, five years almost. So trying to figure out what kinds of things, how we can switch it up, what kinds of new ways we can tell the types of stories we're interested in telling with Idea Channel, trying to talk about the importance of theory and the importance of uh, philosophy and, and critical ideas. And so, yeah, I think those, you know, things like But Wait, we've, uh, we have another thought experiment video in the works. Um, we're doing a, a couple other new, new different types of formats just to see you know, throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. Do you find that now when you're coming up with ideas or topics for the show that you want to see if they fit to a certain format, or does that come later? I think we probably try to f- try to fill... We start with format, yeah. and then try to fill that with a story or an idea. Okay. Uh, less so coming up with an idea and then trying to figure out, you know, what kind of format will suit it best. Uh, I think just because the way we do our production, it, it helps us to know what kind of beast we are making before we start making it. All right. I, I recall in that uh, particular interview, there was some hubbub around that time about the timing of your releases and how you were organized, reorganizing the way in which the process mm-hmm. went about, that it had been about timeliness prior, to which I'm not suggesting that it has ceased to be about timeliness yeah. since. But how is it going about now as opposed to how it was going then? So the experiment that we tried was we went into bulk production for a little while, and that was at, I think, at around the time that we talked last we had just started to figure out how to do bulk production, and that lasted maybe an additional quarter of a year. Oh wow! Yeah, it just it ended up being something that we were really bad at, and that and that we couldn't really plan for, couldn't keep ahead of. And mm. so, part of the thing that we're trying to do now is trying to figure out now that now that we know bulk production, you know, working on four episodes at once, shooting four things at once, having four things go into post production at once. Now that we know that that's tough for us, how do we then? Make how do we work as sensibly as possible if that's not how we're going to do it, but not work on the week by week basis where we're always getting behind. So it's somewhere in between. I want to talk about the Idea Channel, but I'm actually more interested in covering the stuff that has not been covered on Matt's interview show because, believe me, it will be in the show notes. You can simply go listen there. So I'm going to move to something that was kind of glossed over during that interview, and uh, I was actually secretly glad it was because it left me room to ask it. And that was when you mentioned uh, your background in critical theory, which I 
don't think uh, is a far stretch to say is somewhat relevant to what we try to do here at best. And I'd like to know exactly what kind of background that was. So it's it's weird. My background in critical theory is a weird background in critical theory because Better yet. <laughs> my only direct interaction as a student with critical theory was through my electronic music instructor. <laughs> I, I, I had an electronic music instructor of my own, and he certainly liked to talk about electronic <laughs> theory, so maybe it just comes with the trade. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that sort of framed my uh, music education, uh, which my, you know, my undergrad, well, I only have one degree, and it is an undergrad degree, and it is in music composition and computer science. So a, a lot of the work that I did um, making electronic music, uh, I did sort of coming from a background or like being influenced by this teacher who was really invested in you know the the work of critical theorists and so you know i think that that's it's it's hard it's the thing that i always get sort of (laughs) worried about is if people people think that i'm i am a critical theorist or that i do (laughs) the that kind of but it's not a far stretch it shows up in your writing it shows that you think about not just music in that way but most aspects of modern media in that way so it's what i suppose i was more curious about at that time and do you would you say directly impacts your writing um, I think scripting. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I think the thing that the thing one of the things that we're always trying to figure out on Idea Channel is how we can talk about the way um, media influences uh, culture and the way culture influences media and the way that there is this feedback loop and the way that when uh, a creator creates something they bring a meaning to their work. A work always reflects the conditions of its creation, and then when an audience consumes that, they are sort of being taught things about the world. Uh, They're learning about the world through that work, and then they bring that to the work that they make and the other work that they consume. Um, Right. And so there's always, you know, no matter sort of what we're working on, we're always trying to uncover that process. Interesting. Uh, Talking about scripting as well, which Steven brought up, um, not all the episodes since I last spoke to you have been scripted that I can tell. Like, you've had guests on. When you talked about drinks, you had your friend who's a bartender Mm -hmm. on, and then was it with uh, uh, 3D printing, you also had another guest on. And so are those episodes scripted at all, or are there parts that are scripted, or is it just an impromptu interview? It kind of depends upon the the comfort level of the person that I'm... So we've done three so far. We've done um, Ivy, who we talked about cocktails and cocktail glasses. We did um, Michael, who works with Shapeways about 3D printing and copyright. And we talked with Rose about um, cyborgs. Oh, that's right, yes. To be a cyborg. And I think that, you know, for each of those three, they were each approached a little bit differently. Um, And I think it just always depends upon whether or not it's someone who wants to know exactly what we're going to be talking about. Um, If I have a specific thing that I want to make sure we get to, we'll talk about that. Um, If we just kind of want to show up and shoot and see what happens, we do that. Um, And I think for each of the sort of sections within each of those videos, there's a a little bit of each of of those. Um, Overall... There is a set of questions that I produce ahead of time uh, so that they can know sort of what we're going to be talking about and feel comfortable, but that doesn't mean that everything that you're seeing is scripted. Sure. Like, often, I think, in those videos, the stuff that ends up getting cut is the stuff that people know they were going to say. Yeah. Because the interesting stuff is after you've been talking for a while and you, like, you hit on an idea and then you're off to the races talking about something that you're both interested in and and excited about. And, like, the canned stuff that you knew it was coming was just the preparation for the real, you know, the real conversation. Sure. 
And earlier you mentioned the word consumed, and you recently did a video on uh, But Wait, How Do We Consume Media? And I found it to be one of my favorites that you've done. Thanks. Uh, only because I, I like the way it ended up being, just encoding art, decoding art, and then reproduction. And it led me to the question of where did you find Stuart Hall, the Stuart author Hall. Yeah. you drew from? Where did you find him? And more importantly, where do you get a lot of the... Information, because I know you do a lot of research. You got to do a lot of research for some of these topics, even the lighthearted topics that you were doing in the very early, like Super Mario. That's a lot of information you got to do, and I couldn't Google the heck out of him. I, I, I could <laughs> yeah. not find any of his works. How do you find some of these places that you're pulling from? Um, so Stuart Hall specifically is, I think, when you're like a cultural studies nerd, he's someone that you're going to study. Um, he's not going to be at the level of like a Marshall McLuhan, who is himself a kind of weird, famous character, like yeah. the kind of, kind of character we don't really have anymore. The famous media theorist. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I guess we kind of have, we kind of have like Mal Malcolm Gladwell, I guess. I guess, but it's not quite. It's not the, the same. same. Yeah, like we have Noam Chomsky, but that's you know the famous public intellectual. Well, one day we'll have Mike Rugnetta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, but Stuart Hall is someone who. If you're doing a course in college on media studies or cultural studies, he's someone that you're likely to come across. But I think that he doesn't—he doesn't get a lot of wide recognition because his publication history, as you've figured out, yeah, is almost non-existent. It's weird in book form. Yeah, at least. You, you find like his essays in things. You find essay collections that he's edited and worked on. Um, but yeah, he doesn't have—he doesn't have a library in the way someone like a Marshall McLuhan does. So I had read a lot of his work just in passing, just you know, throughout throughout my academic and research career. Um, that that specific episode came about because we had made an episode about talking about how the media tells you what to think, like how media. Yeah, I remember that one. Does opinion setting, and one of the ones, one of the one of the responses to that episode uh, from a couple commenters who write a lot of comments and who I respect and whose opinions are like really great. They tend to say really smart stuff. They were like, oh, you know, you should talk about encoding and decoding at some point. And then some other people, um, unrelated, were like, huh, it's weird that in this episode about how the media teaches you what to think, you never once confronted the media as consumable good metaphor and talked mm. about how, the and so I just happened to see those two comments next to one another and thought, huh, those two together are an episode. <laughs> uh, and so it was just a matter of doing the work to figure out what so theories If these about. things don't all fall under critical theory, then I don't know what critical <laughs> theory is. Critical theory, I mean, in the end, it's kind of like a, a non, not going to say a new concept, but I mean in terms of like research and documentation and trying to like turn it into the kind of discussion that can be engaged in, not just by the everyday person, but also by scholars and then exchanging it back and forth. And I think PBS Idea Channel actually really facilitates this. I think it's actually one of one of the only channels, not just on YouTube, but channels in general that facilitate it, that actually has utilized the YouTube comment board to amazing <laughs> avail. Thanks. Thank you. It's, you know, it's an uphill battle, but we're very proud of the fact that we can design for a good conversation. Well, you're at a steep point looking down <laughs> on the worst of us. <laughs> um, actually, talking about YouTube 
as a whole, I don't think I covered in the past what kind of YouTube channels you like. Because we talked about the Idea Channel, but I'm sure you watch stuff on YouTube as well. Sure. Do you have any... I know you've had some guests on or featured people in moments that, like, I remember when you did the crossover with extra credits and stuff like that. So I'm sure some of that lends from your taste. You're like, hey, you're cool. I want to have you on my thing. But what kind of YouTube channels do you watch and what do you look for in that kind of content? It really is. It's a lot of the stuff that you would exactly... It's like extra credit. It's really... I am very lucky to say that it's a lot of my friends Friends. That's awesome. And it's, you know, I get to hang out with, with Craig, you know, Wheezy Waiter yeah. whenever he releases a video. So, like, yeah, I watch a lot of Wheezy Waiter. I watch Extra Credits. I watch um, Emily Grassley, The Brain Scoop. I watch uh, The Vlogbrothers, John and Hank, a lot of the Crash Course yep. stuff. Um, Ollie from Philosophy 2, you know. This is our daily consumption. Yeah, <laughs> kind of all the stuff that you would expect that I would watch just from following me on Twitter and seeing what other kinds of, you know. So would you say your media personality really matches your personality? I'd say it's pretty close. Pretty close. Few of us can say that. Yeah. Normally, like, you put on that microphone and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, I must uh, <laughs> straighten up, fly right. Um, well, that's interesting also because I find myself lately consuming YouTube media more than TV media. Like, uh... Me and my wife are cord cutters, and for those who don't really know what that means, essentially, we don't have cable. We use YouTube and Hulu and and Amazon and Netflix to watch all our shows. Um, but I find I go to YouTube daily more than those other means. Do you find that you do that as well? That is my ideal situation to be in, uh -huh. but what tends to happen is I tend to go for a long time without watching YouTube and then spend a weekend or a half a week off catching up mm -hmm. because for work for idea channel and for reasonably sound like i have to watch tv sure. and mm -hmm. watch movies yeah. and so any watching that i do is going to be in the interest of that kind of stuff I mean, any sense. form of journalism even if it's op-ed journalism has to have a pretty well-rounded background and i think the same would would should apply to any any consumer wow i feel I feel like i'm using a faux pas now based on discussion <laughs> and your and your video it's, it's I, not consumer it's decoder decoder Look, as long yes. as you don't say jiff or gif we're okay that, <laughs> that's that's fine let's not, that's get, a, let's not get let's started. started yeah, yeah i know, know. <laughs> um i once i just read an article the other day that is the it is it refuses to die absolutely yeah. refuses to die Th there was another youtuber i watched who recently made that gift i don't know if you're familiar with Matt Pat who does yep. game theory and so on his most recent video he said click on the gif or jif he said both and put two of the same exact images with the same exact links and so yeah I find that that still comes up quite a bit which is interesting because you'd think people would just kind of let the conversation nah man the, the tribes have been yeah. made it's the line in the sand has been drawn you need to you need to advertise your uh, your allegiance. Well, that's why I like Jif because it's just completely foreign <laughs> to all of them. It makes everyone upset. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> well, let's move on to another interesting thing here because another thing that was not covered in your interview with Matt is Mike Rugnetta, the musician. Mm -hmm. How did he start? I started doing sound stuff in high school for theater, so I was doing you know like sound design and setting up sound systems and stuff mm -hmm. and um, decided that I want to, wanted in college to study music. Right. And uh, every college that I applied to, except for one, which is the one that I ended up going to, told me that if, if I wanted to study music in college, I had to have already been a musician. I should have already been studying. Interesting. I needed to already know. Is that... I, I got a little bit of that yeah, degree. Is yeah. that common? Like, is that usually the case? I mean, I guess for you it for, was, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I Musicians, never I mean, it is true. Musicians very often, they expect that it would be something that would have come about in your adolescence. 
and to a lesser extent, at least from high school, much lesser extent from bachelor's into master's. But yeah, it, it's a li- little bit of a problem for those yeah. quick learners that feel like they could just start up at and any And so point. you had to, the school you ended up going to didn't have that prerequisite? Yeah, the, the school that I ended up going to was the only school where I said, I want to do, I want to study theater, and I'm really interested in writing things, and I want to make music, and I really like computers. And they said... That seems cool. I wonder what you could do with all of those things. Here is your lab, sir. <laughs> and every, every other college that I applied to said, they were like, you're going to have to choose one of those, and you can't choose two of them because you don't know enough to, right now to choose them. Uh-huh. Uh, so when I went to co- where I went to college, I went to a really small liberal arts college called Bennington. And um, the first thing that I studied was ethnomusicology. Uh, and then from there went to... Uh, music production and engineering, and from there took parallel paths to composition and um, electronic music. Interesting. And right. that, uh, when, when would you say was your first release, and where can most people find your work? Um, the first record that I ever made, I think came out when I was a sophomore in college. I don't know if you can find it anywhere? Well, that's, that's not helpful at all. Exist. Yeah, I'm going to have to see if I can... But there are early things that I made that are all available on Bandcamp. It's but just micrognetta.bandcamp.com. This is something else that I'm noticing among artists, content creators, of the like. It used to be that, yes, you'd bury the stuff that you did in the past, and you'd try to make it hard for people to find that. But there's this push now where, since everybody just wants everything from the person that they like, that content creator that, that that's their favorite, they want to find their earliest, <laughs> by all stretches, maybe even crappiest stuff, right? Right? And so now, at this point, you just have to kind of put those reservations behind you. A lot of them are just throwing them up on the internet. I mean, like, it doesn't matter how early or how rough yeah. or how demo-ish. There is some garbage stuff it. that I made that is on <laughs> that Bandcamp. Yeah. Well, I'm quick, not implying. <laughs> no, I, you don't have to. I'm going to state it out. <laughs> the quick, a quick anecdote is the first time I met Schaefer the Dark Lord, we did an interview in a bar that ended up being the written interview that's now on CrashCourse.com. Right. When, he, when I met with him, he was very, very generous. I had downloaded his stuff Um purchase downloaded but he gave me physical copies of his albums he's like here you know I brought these you can have them I was like oh great wait where's your first album he's like you don't want that shit like that was the first thing he said he's like you don't you don't you don't want it but I'm also in a really interesting position or interesting I'm in a strange position because most of the music that I ever wrote was for um, theater and dance and and Mm. performance art so I mean a lot of that stuff is is it's up there on the band camp okay but it's like you can download a record for uh, the music that I wrote for a dance piece but are, are you getting the whole work? Yeah. I mean, qu- like question mark. Is there is there any desire or possibility to release the full video? You know, like the the dance work with the music. Yeah, some of them have uh, video versions where you know the studio version of the sound of mm-hmm. the music is paired with you know a nice video. Oh, cool. But it's you know, <laughs> it's not. That's, I feel like that's a lot to ask for from people. Sure, you know, a lot of people don't want to have that experience either. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're looking to get out of it also. I mean, like for me, when I first listened to your music, like I only knew you at first from Idea Channel. So when I found out you were a musician, I went back and listened to all of it. And I was like, oh, this is really cool and interesting. And I didn't even have really that connection. But also, I guess, because I I knew, at least from your YouTube personality, kind of where you were as a creator and an artist, like it was easy for me, I guess, to sort of understand your work and not and didn't need that image. Hey, if you're saying that it divorces itself from, you know, the main work or however you want to describe it without a problem, I'm on board. That's great. That's <laughs> great Would news. you say that that's how most people have arrived at your music? Or did you have a, a devoted following before the PBS Idea Channel era? No, definitely not. Okay. okay. Definitely not. <laughs> All right. Would you like to actually start producing your own music? Do you want to be a rock star? 
I don't know if I, I want to ask. I don't know I if I want to be a rock star. Right to it. Um, I would say that what I, I would like to be able to spend more time making music than I currently do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, Would it be theatrical music? Uh, like, is that, like, did you really get hooked on it because of the theater side of it, or was it just the compositional side? Um, I really like working collaboratively, um, and I think that there are a thousand ways for me to get those kicks. Oh, okay. So you just want to make beauty. <laughs> let me, let me, I mean, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Let me extract. Listen, some... listen to some of the things that I've made before. You... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a bit of it, which is why I think this is going to be an interesting question. <laughs> just, just putting it out there. Let me get to extract from John's uh, question. This is really broad. What does an album that you release mean to you in the end? Um, so, considering your work as a whole, yeah. what is it as a portion of your life? There's a, there is a. I, I think it was Richard Serra. Um, has this really great quote about creativity. And he says that creativity is for amateurs. What artists, real artists do is solve problems. And that you give yourself a problem Mm. and you solve the problem. And so every record that I have, every distinct album that I have made is a solution to a problem. Um, And sometimes I arrive at the solution in four tracks with one guitar. And sometimes it's a 90-minute dance piece with five performers, a choreographer, uh, a you know, lighter, lighting designer, and so that's another bigger problem. Well, I, unlike Matt, has not gone through your entire discography, <laughs> but having listened only to a portion of it, and just having heard that quote right now, which I will be quoting probably for the next hundred years if I so live that long, but still, I think I've just, I think I'm going to listen to your discography now. Because <laughs> I, yes, I, I did it! I adore that. That's solving problems. I think a lot I, of it is also, you know, I make things that a lot of people would not describe as enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and I recognize that. And I think that the the only way that I feel comfortable sort of defending it, like, I yeah. think it's really pretty, but, like, you can have that argument with someone forever. Like, yeah. What, yeah. What is beauty, you guys? Here right. we go. Let's get started. We have that <laughs> argument weekly. <laughs> yeah. No, but um, it does come yeah. down to problem solving in the end, and I think most of the artists that seem happiest in what they do are the people who enjoy that that process really more than they enjoy any amount of feedback or, you know, circulation, discussion surrounding their work. It's just them trying to solve the problem on their own terms, and though it may be entirely wrapped up in their own head at that point, I think it's up to us, people like us, like Crash Chords, Shameless Pitch, to uh, try to unfold that and peel back the layers. But I do believe there should be a discussion concerning music based entirely on those grounds because these are the kinds of artists we want in society people that are problem solvers and not merely you know creating simply to create if that makes any sense yeah i'm not putting that down entirely but i think the the logical problem solving aspect is what has given us some of the most interesting works yeah i mean i would that was a little bit of a soapbox moment i'm sorry (laughs) it's fine um going back to um Something we did talk about on our last interview, which if you haven't heard, is Crash Cards Autographs, and Mike Rignetto was a guest, um, I believe it was over the summer. can't remember I the dates of the episode. Episode 43? It could be. That, that sounds, sounds, that sounds, sounds right. correct. That we'll does, all believe I, I only right know Crash Cards podcast. Yeah, I've I not shifted over yeah. to memorize autographs. Um, but job, we, we talked about your podcast, Reasonably Sound, which I'm a fan of. Um, and you've had, since we last talked, kind of a mini-sode, like a, here's the thing, because I'm still working on figuring out where it's going. Have you made any progress with, with Reasonably Sound? Do you have an idea of when that will be out to a regular schedule again? Dude, it's relaunched. 
Has it? It's relaunched. I've, it ha- was not when I last checked. Uh, two <laughs> weeks ago. ago. Oh, sweet. Oh, I've been out yeah. of the podcast verse for about two weeks now. Uh, should be a new episode actually coming out this week. Excellent. Ooh. Awesome. Cool. So right. was yeah. it was it a, a matter of just kind of how to host it and publish it? Or it was was a, it... Yeah, it was like a super, it was a bunch of super boring legal nonsense. Oh. That's like, it's not even like cool, interesting, dramatic legal nonsense. Mm. It's like transferring a trademark and, you know... Make it be in a business. It's and like faux pas, like do- what Matt pulled at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> like Shame. Um, oh well, that's great. I'm excited to hear that. Because, yes. Um, it's so it's basically I had it. I just had a year's worth of paperwork, and now the paperwork is done and the shit's back. So great. I'm awesome. very excited for. Tomorrow. And do you ha- do you have the intent to have the same kind of publish- publishing schedule you had before? That is the intent. Whether or not I actually am able to do it will be another question. Sure. But I think uh, yeah, I'm aiming on on doing uh, an episode every two weeks ish. Ish. Okay. Uh, the ish is good to include, I yeah. feel like. Um, yeah, because I've kind of been in a wormhole of podcasting. I've been been home the last couple of weeks, so it's like, if I'm not commuting somewhere, I don't often listen to podcasts. I feel you. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, but I'm very excited to know that. Yeah, and we did the, uh, the first episode back after the hiatus is about the type of sound the Inception sound is. Oh, oh awesome. the Bois. Bra- yeah, the Bra- Bois. they're called Brahms. Bois. Yeah, that's what a lot of people could be at B-R-A-A-A-M. And then next week's episode is about um, uh, how dog whistles work. Oh. Like, and so that's what I think is really interesting about going from your from the a show that's mostly created to be video. Like I've I've at when working have listened to Idea Channel, and sometimes it works, but sometimes you really need the 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 visual reaction and the, the gifts really also help in the then the those statements. Whereas reasonably sound, you're doing a lot of similar things you do in Idea Channel, but in a very specifically sonic way, yeah. which of course makes it completely different. And I think that's fascinating using a similar formula, but because you're translating it just to sound comes across completely different. One, and one of the things that I... It's really nice to hear because one of the things that I'm trying really hard to do is to... On Idea Channel, we, I sometimes have to write visually. I have yeah. to consciously write for... We have to have this kind of asset that will demonstrate that this is how you should react to this idea. Right. I talk about abstract ideas in a way that our animator can make them come to life yeah. to make sure that everything's active. But on Reasonably Sound, I'm trying to write not visually and yeah. trying to make sure that I'm writing sonically which is such a, a great change of an interesting change of pace and you know it's I, tough but it's fun there will be links <laughs> there will be links and I also do want to not let this interview go by without bringing up that um, the utility that I feel that all of your work has but especially Idea Channel like we talked about on our interview previously the uh, the grade school class that uses Idea Channel for lessons and stuff and how you actually visited that class and all that stuff and that how these shows really do have utility I actually used your straw man argument fallacy video oh, yeah. to settle we were discussing there was a song called Straw Dog on last week's album last week's album Monument Builders by Lossel or Lossel whatever you say me and John <laughs> were going back and forth on what a straw dog is versus a straw man argument and how they're similar and I was like wait 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 let's watch this wait what's a straw dog so, it's a business version of a straw man argument so, uh, setting up a business or an idea or some sort of capital push yeah. to fail so that a different budgetary idea gets pushed forward no way yeah, yeah. It was a really interesting yeah. concept. I never heard about that, but we 
all heard about straw man argument, and it was quite a, I a show too, beforehand. The I argument went is too it, sarcastic with my straw man argument. That's what I felt. Yes. Yes, and it became a, sort of a, like a the more goofier ones you've done with right, with yeah. straw man, like real out there. Yeah. Um, Any chance actually, of you remembering that example? No, but it, I think it had something to do. Oh yeah, no, I do remember that example. I'm not repeating it. <laughs> uh, no, no, I remember it exactly. I'm not repeating it at all. Yeah, I do have that's a follow-up to that. For. Um, straw Mike, did he come about because you were doing the straw man argument? Yeah, it was. We needed someone to argue it. Yeah, and to visually be, uh, to visually indicate that we were purposefully making an argument that was easy to knock down. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think a lot you of people bring him back though. Uh, he, he that is a very useful tool. He came back really briefly. We recently did a um, a fallacies episode for the election cycle. Yeah, and there was a there was a sort of more designy version of him that popped up for a second. <laughs> yeah. You know what you should make? You should make another YouTube channel called the the GBS Idea yeah. Channel, <laughs> yeah. and you should just fill it with a lot of crap. And then on your channel, you should talk about how crappy, how it, crappy is. it is. You yeah. now have a straw dog. Yeah. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. We've talked about doing Bad Idea Channel, like spinning up a new Bad Idea Channel for uh, like an April Fool's joke or something. That was a better name. <laughs> maybe this is. Maybe that would be great. Well, yeah. I liked your April Fool's joke. What was it? This year that you did the perfume? Was did it the, a cologne, did, cologne did, commercial? Yeah. Yes. Which was just like, I mean, it was absolutely those 90s to 2000s cologne commercials that you imagined. And it was just, it was well done. And I think we had a conversation about how it was almost impossible for you to get through some of the lines without oh, losing it. Very difficult. Um, do you find that that happens, like you break during the show when, when making examples? It, or like pointing to stuff or like motioning before the stuff is actually in the shot? Um, before we shoot, I tend to have rehearsed a script several times over, so I've gotten most of the giggles out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a few notable exceptions, like we did, we recently did an episode that was a, a script that was written by an AI. I remember that one. That was uh, really cool. And that was hard. There were there were a couple moments in that where I couldn't not laugh, because it's just, it was, it's <laughs> four straight minutes of not nonsense, I mean, doing finger quotes. Um, but, but the, and you're delivering the nonsense with such conviction. As seriously as possible, so that was hard. This reminds me of a Craig Ferguson episode in his latter days, where he decided to replace the robot with Larry King. Just because <laughs> it was impossible for them to get through a sentence without laughing because one sentence with Larry King as your announcer for Ferguson was just enough to make them choke up. It's not something I can describe because it's not something that even they predicted. This kind of ideas that Craig Ferguson has or had. Um, I think this is a good point to shift gears a bit and get into why we're here today on yeah, Crash Chords. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the album you chose and the artists? Because I know you're familiar with their discography and mm-hmm. you, you had a reason for choosing other than you really liked it. And so um, if you give us a little background on it. Yeah. So um, it was actually, it was not without some strain that I came to this decision. Well, we did have some emails yeah, back and we forth. we had some back and forth. So I chose um, Without My Enemy, What Would I Do, which is by Maiden Heights. It is um, their Made in Heights, not Maiden Heights. Um, <laughs> I didn't even consider that that yeah. would be a problem. Because well, I've had, I've told people uh, before, like, oh yeah, just Google Maiden Heights, and they're like, I can't find Maiden Heights. Right. I'm like, why not? If they're a band, Did I just kept, quotes? I kept wanting to add a the there, the Heights, the Heights, right? The Heights, nope, just Heights, any Maiden old Heights. And it's their, I think they would describe it as their second record. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the third release of theirs that I am familiar with. It came out about a year and a half ago. I think it's a May 2015 release. And I know that you guys like to listen to stuff that's recent, and I wanted to have you guys listen to something that is that had a lot to talk about, had a lot of like meat, 
a lot of like detail. It is a tough criteria. Something that I never knew would be such a problem when we began the series. It used to be just like, eh, pick an album, pick an album, pick an album. And we didn't really think too hard about it. And then it's... it became more of a like, well, we would like, we kept running into problems where if you're talking about an album that is a little bit too, was released a little bit too long ago, even if you still think it stands up today easily, then still you have to talk about things that were relevant of the time period. And then it becomes more of like, well, it was new then, so I guess we can kind of give it a pass, but then we're also not viewing it through that lens because we're in today's time. It was a little bit problematic, so we kind of just made this rule that it either has to be this year or the previous year, and we've kind of stuck to our guns ever since with a few exceptions. Just, where is this, just to not be jerks. Where is this it. on the, like, like continuum of lateness? Oh, this um, is fine, because this is last yeah. year. Okay. So usually fine, we pick fine. out albums of the current year, but the the previous year is completely fair game. Okay, yeah. but like two and years ago, you're pushing it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and we've okay. done Let's, stuff. It's, it's not gonna, who's gonna really notice? I, know, yeah. I don't think well, anyone, when you do where does a pile like, become a heap? Like, so, yeah, like, well, exactly. I think the biggest yeah. problem we'd had is like, when we had Shea for the Dark Lord on, he brought us a Beastie Boys album, um, and you know, it, it was one of their greatest records, but holding up compared to the stuff There's now. There's been a lot of stuff in yeah. that genre since, so it's like, ah, oh, the progenitor, which I think is the, where the John was trying to come up before. <laughs> yes, yes. When he was uh, trying to think else. of yeah. like the birth of But something. also we had like Madonna on and her earlier stuff, while is great and does stand up, still compared to the pop now, I mean, there's been evolution. And so I think that like when we're going much deeper back, it, but within the last three or four years, like we can sure. probably make an exception, but this right. is right on target. Great. Uh, so then the other thing, the, the other strain that I had within myself was as someone who makes and listens to lots of very, very challenging music and who talked to Matt about his reaction to Swans, <laughs> I thought that it might be interesting for me to give you guys a very challenging record. Yeah, something very right. noisy, something very un unformed. Gotta be honest, very... that's what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, I really I, was. I did Swans to him. Yeah, yeah I did Swans yeah. to him. It was great. Uh, I'm still looking to recreate that one. And so that's I went that was that was the the back and forth that I had a lot of was whether or not we're going to do I wanted to do this record, which is a record that I love. I love Maiden Heights. I I have every time this is one of these records that every time I listen to it I feel like I learn something new. Um and I really like their work, and I, f I never get a chance to talk to anyone about mm. this record because I don't really know anyone who listens to them. Well, take a drink of water, I guess. <laughs> um, or whether or not I was going to ask you to listen to like a Pharmacon record or something very noisy and strange. But I decided to go with this because I think that it's... I'm hoping that it will be... I think it will be a good conversation. It's been a pretty interesting last few weeks in terms of, like, we went from Taking Back Sunday, so a little some throwback uh, alt-rock there, yeah. but then it's straight into a Austrian prog album, and then just Rick Astley, because Rick Astley, you know, to see what he's doing at gotta 50 play, years gotta old. Gotta play the hits. You know. yeah, yeah, sure. And then into Lossel, or Losil, which was just last week, so some ambient electronica, and now to this. It really seems to be every other week, and that's about how our minds are functioning I think we can't moment. think that far ahead anymore. We've hit that wall where it's like, I don't know what we're doing in yeah. three weeks, but it's whatever <laughs> we're doing next week. I'm going to find something hard. Whatever that's it is, we rise to the occasion. Sure. So. Um, but... But yeah, thank you for bringing this, and I think, see, I almost feel bad that I colored a little bit your choice based on my reaction to swans, and I hope yeah, it didn't like weight it too much, just because, you know, I mean, that said, I know that when we've talked about this, we all have biases that we try and push through, and had you brought something like swans on, of course I would... Sure, try yeah. and look at it objectively. Which is exactly why I, would, I wouldn't do it just to make you mad. Well, that's good, because John would. <laughs> All right. 
Well, let's dive in here. First of all, this is the project of Sabzi and Kelsey Bulkin, is that correct? I think so, yes. yeah. He's a DJ slash producer. He's done other things, other projects, lots of different people, but together they are Maiden Heights. And I think that the producer here definitely has a unique flavor, and sometimes I think it's hard for a DJ to create identity and create flavor, seeing as their work is so kind of just used en masse. And so to- I mean, it depends on the DJ for sure. Yeah. But but I mean, it's, it's not, I think, completely unheard of to say that DJ especially in dance music and popular culture kind of have their hands in a little bit of everything but leans towards pop. Well, I also don't I'm not sure that I'm like a thousand percent confident that I would describe Sabzi as a DJ. Yeah. Like I know okay. that he makes his histories in hip hop, you know, he had a lot of hip hop projects in Seattle, right. came to New York, worked on some hip hop stuff. Um, and I think still like he's really he has solo records that are So he has hip hop roots, but you would just say he's a uh, producer. Producer, just a producer yeah. electronic like, composer, and then just keep it that broad yeah. so it's not too... And, but I, and I think that that ameliorates some of maybe the concerns. It's like, wait, how does a, you know, a yeah. DJ do this kind of thing? I think maybe he's just of that world, but is not, you know, he does... So there's some wiki-wiki noises. Yeah. They're he, thrown in just to show where he kind of comes from, but yeah, I think it's more his his identity is a sonic identity. It's it's and rhythmic identities are actually more difficult to cultivate, and that's I think really what comes up in droves on this album. So let's begin with track one, death. Awful cheery way to start the record. Awful cheery, <laughs> but it also is. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know what to say. I, so no, so, I feel like I've made that argument, but I have no context at this point. <laughs> there's, there's. I think, I think of the first part of this song where you know, like Kelsey laughs and then yes. uh, talks about how she was smiling too big to sing, and then we get into right. the actual track. Is like a great throat clearing kind yeah. of moment. No, I was gonna breeze past the opening sound bites, but I probably shouldn't because it does have that opening bit of laughter, and then suddenly there's a clip, a sudden clip to a quick acoustic guitar bit. All happens in the blink of an eye before the suddenly you get your chords. Now, we can come back to those opening sound bites if you want to make your argument here. But I want to get out something on these opening chords. Just a brief progression rant. It's a four chord progression, often looped throughout, and this album is not past doing that. It's A major 7, A major ninth, just to add the one little note at the top, G sharp minor, that's your five chord, but first inversion, and then C sharp minor, we resolve to minor one, and we go around again, starting at A major 7. And that little transition right there, from the C sharp minor to the A major 7, is the same as just throwing a little A at the bottom for C sharp minor. So again, it's just small little modifications to these chords. So in total, it's six major seven, six major ninth, five first inversion, and minor one. Which, paired with the synth, all right, it's grand and all that, but it wasn't yet enough to lure me in at the start of this album. I guess because the progression was a little too cadence-based. But then the beat that follows it was enough to really lift my eyebrow because it, it was actually a close, contained, closed-in uh, nature. It's something to the percussion felt like it was very isolated and like like wood blocks in a soundproof booth with no reverb after effects whatsoever. In fact, all the percussion on this album is pretty angular to me, and I do think to spin it around, it contrasts pretty well with the sweeping nature of that synth. Yeah, and and to go back to what Mike was talking about with that introduction moment. I like sound bites like that on albums because to me, I'm a behind the scenes junkie. Like I used to love to watch behind the music because I like knowing how things are made. And so those brief moments, you get so much just of personality out yeah. of that moment just because she says something, she giggles and it goes. And I like that. It's like a, a peek at how it works before we get something that 
almost seems completely unrelated to that moment. Which is why it was weird to look back at it in retrospect, because I had been taken on a little bit of a roller coaster there, where it's just like, oh, what's this? Oh, this is going to be one of those works, where there's going to be cut and splice every five seconds or two seconds. I don't know if you ever heard the band uh, or the artist Prefuse 73. Yeah. Yep. Like, that's what his, his kind of stuff is, and that's kind of what I expected from this, just based on those five seconds. But then all of a sudden you're like, oh, four chord progression. And then I'm like, oh, well, I'm a little disappointed now. Maybe I would have preferred the Preppy 73 stuff. But then there's that rhythmic touch. And that's where yeah. the, the uniqueness of this artist, uh, not just to kind of single out Sabzi, because uh, the vocalist, she's doing very interesting things as well. But that's what brought me in first yeah. was, was his work. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, like, really great detail work that is, you know, like, you have the organic nature of a lot of the percussion sounds mm -hmm. that then uh, creates a tension with a lot of times the way that they're played it's yeah. it's they're sequenced they're put into a drum machine yeah um and then set against a lot of times really sort of straightforward like nice harmony and yeah. i think the reason that i would call the the opening laughter um and uh like the little bit a of little acoustic guitar yeah thing. that comes yep. after uh, like a great throat clearing moment is that i think it sets up kind of how you might think about maiden heights in this record as you're always working with these contradictions. The song is called Death, yeah. and it starts with laughter. <laughs> right? Right. And it's also, you know, there's something that I want to bring up in retrospect before it gets too far pushed in the distance, and that is the album cover. Because we always like to say a little thing about the album cover, even though sometimes we, we fail at that. But <laughs> the, there is this album cover of just kind of, it looks like a wreath of kind, just made of flowers. So at, at the outset, it's pretty, it's pretty pleasing. It's kind of a warm and inviting feeling. You have that contradiction, too. Then all of a sudden, something called Death and and obviously the lyrics here, I mean, I don't know if death is exactly, it's not like the act of dying, but a kind of like, I guess, emotional emptiness inside. Let me just read the beginning before I describe it musically. Felt it rush like a hush in the attic. You could see me blush when I tell you all about it. In a moment hit the switch, then a moment in the dark, then a moment so pervasive it was breaking us apart. The galaxy is spreading like a rumor in your jaw. Better keep your planet spinning, better keep the motive tall. There's time inside my tears making diamonds on the wall. Heavy forest, summer nights, I confess that I'm a lightweight. It really has a nice cadence to it, but there's obvious emptiness there. This is the end of a relationship. It's an emotional vacancy inside. There's something missing in her life, but yet it still works interestingly with those contradictions. And her vocals are so sweet and summery, even. Like, she's, it's a, it's a weaker level. It's not really belting forward. And we do get that actually in the second verse, where she definitely gains a little bit of force, a little bit of emotion, trying to not belt, but trying to really impart meaning in these words in that second verse. But the first verse, because it's so low key and because it's being. Uh, I guess, curtailed with the tempo. It's not really standing outside the tempo. It's not really standing outside any of the instrumentation that's going on. It's just, it flows along with you. You're, you're getting very broad brushstrokes with it. That's because it's an almost rap. Like, she starts off fairly monotone. It's a little <laughs> more rigid, but also a little more melodic. Like, she stays very close to that C-sharp minor key that I said in the beginning. Like, very often she's just repeating the same note over and over and over. In fact, she stays so close to just that note for the majority of the first verse, and it throws in the bead in there too, but then in the line, heavy forest summer night, I confess that I'm a lightweight, then that's when we really start to feel the melody here. She, the following lines come across to me as, as absolutely gorgeous because she's made us desperate for just that interval of a fifth because <laughs> yeah. fate is rolling up and every single time she goes through this that up that word up is always up a fifth and it's just 
ah, uh, it was just, she made me desperate for a an interval, you know? I love, I love that kind of manipulation with your expectations. And then we start getting a piano touches on top of this, just little flourishes along the keys that start adding a little bit of color, but still not letting her vocals really take center stage. It's more, it's more like they're playing off just the idea of being soothing, especially when the hook shows up. And the hook is almost like an anti-hook. It's not really being forced. She goes even background. She starts not slurring, but letting every word sort of bleed into one another and really just going soft, soft on the melody, soft on the scale, so that it's it's literally a breeze going past your ears. Mm -hmm. And it's actually something that I've neglected to mention. You brought up the piano. The piano actually arrived at the same exact time as her vocals arrived. And it is another kind of harsh cut from the stuff that occurred before, the synth stuff, and then all of a sudden you get that piano, and it's it's pretty harsh if it wasn't the fact that it's the same chord that you've been kind of used to, that A major chord. So it's warm enough considering the sudden nature of it, and then you're just thrown right into the vocals, this sort of nursery rhyme, dainty rap, like I said, that mostly occurs on one note until you gradually are introduced to these higher intervals. Another moment I really, really liked was further along in the verse, maybe you could almost call it the pre-chorus at that point, um, I genuinely love to hear your thoughts. And she goes back and forth there, this alteration between the fifth and the seventh was really glorious because it finally brings out the chord so strongly in her vocals. So I particularly love the staggered reveal of this melody. That was my favorite thing at this point. So now she is the spotlight, no longer Sabzi. <laughs> well, and I think that the, the interesting dynamic about this track, even in the very beginning, is that it seems to have hints everywhere of something else like like we it's, talked yeah. we talked at the top of the show that Sabzi does work in hip hop and from the moment the beat comes in here it's not heavy it's not pervasive but you can get a sense that it feels almost like a hip hop beat even though it's not a hip hop song it's got that kind of um, pacing that you could so when she speak raps, yeah. as it were, it fits really well, even though the song doesn't feel like necessarily a rap song. And I song. think that's, you know, we're talking about contradictions. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, the sort of tension that comes out of putting these elements together and having them find their own individual place next to one another. That, like, that's, I think, one of the ones that you see throughout the whole record yeah. that always is really meaningful. Like, how exactly she is delivering in response to the music that Sabzi has written. Yeah. That, like, is it, how, how singy is this? What kind of singy is it? How rappy is it? Yeah. And the, the point in which you're like, oh, this is sort of a run-of-the-mill pop, pop song for the yeah. moment, but then all of a sudden there's something that enters in there to kind of throw you more toward the electronic side, more yeah. toward the experimental edge of it without crossing the threshold. Or, like, even those moments where you're like, oh, now she is just l- rapping. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's not just her doing it. Sometimes, like, when she steps in with the second verse and the uh, final hooks, the bass starts showing up, the bass tones, and those are working off of her as opposed to her working off of them. They were almost a counterpoint to what she was doing. Because by the time that second verse steps in, and towards the end of it when she says, but I'm alive, yes, I am alive, and she takes that A and goes, ah, 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 live. Yeah. It's just... Everything that's working alongside of her is almost being defeated by that. And that's where she flips the emotion, where she flips the persona that we got in that first verse and that hook, where you actually start seeing the identity of the character. 
Yeah, and then there's another thing that shows up later because I didn't honestly expect this on the on this track, and I honestly didn't think, think the track really needed it. But it was a, a solo, kind of a vocal yeah. solo, and I didn't even realize it was a solo at first. I I have a tendency. The thing is on this podcast to yawn at like those non-words when it just feels like it's ah or o's or oos. I feel like we get so much of it that it doesn't really mean anything in the end. And I realized that from one angle. All right, at the end of the day, it's just for the melody itself. So you have to vocalize something, but sometimes it feels really empty to me. It feels like a momentary lapse in the story, which is a little bit problematic for me in my interpretation of the story. It feels like a gap, but then the moment we start to get that, then it expands, and you're like, oh, oh, now her voice is just an instrument. I accept yeah. it differently. It was and a matter of visualization. Do you think you accept it differently because of the relationship that it has to an actual word? That, like, it's... You, I feel like when Kelsey normally does this kind of thing, it's always a syllable from a word yes. that she either has said or will soon say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think I, connecting I, yeah. it to that narrative, finger quotes, because narrative isn't something that we get clear pictures of at every point in this album, right. but for sure here, it's definitely that, the, at least the story she's telling here, it is connected to it, where it's not just like, ooh, 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 randomly in the middle of a song. But I might have meant it to say that I accept it differently because now her, her voice is... Not just an instrumental, but a soloing instrument. Sure. And I feel that differently than when it's simply like a, a hook. Hooks, as, when they're very brief, sometimes feel very meaningless to me. And so uh, there's not a lot of fluff on this album. And I think that yeah. is really a, a perk, really, in any pop album, frankly, for me. I don't want to talk about every single detail that we're eventually going to get to in the record, just in the first, in the first <laughs> I know, track. It's, but it's I feel tough. like this is a really good place to, to talk about, like... Um, how that might relate to some of their work that came before this sure. record. Absolutely. Because one of the things that I think they did a lot of on their previous two releases is to play with the tension of um, the vocals acting like a sampler and the sampler taking the vocals and making it seem more human. Like right. Kelsey using her voice as an instrument, like a more electronic instrument, and a more electronic instrument acting like a voice. Yeah. And I think that they toned that down in this record, but you still sometimes get hints of it. No, that's actually something I really, really like. I mean, not just, I, I hear that in this album, and it's something that I tend to like in general. We talk a lot about that, the humanizing effect of yeah. things that sound very cold and barren or machine-like, and then also the inverse. It actually just came up last week in Monument Builders by Lossel. Go check it out. Well, yeah, and actually, before we move on to track two, I think that's something that I forgot to mention at the start, but the synthy kind of intro that the track has after the soundbite, yeah. I actually thought was vocals, sort of. And and Mike essentially said to me, it could be, because of that thing that you just talked about. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, uh, you know, her singing, put fed into a keyboard, and then and, stacked. And that's really cool, because I honestly, like, still, I've listened to this album several times, can't tell which it is. And I like that mystery, almost, that I'm kind of second-guessing, and I'm sure I could research it and find it somewhere, but I kind of like that enigma of, I'm not quite sure which it is, and I like it either way. Yeah. It's a nice element, which sometimes, it works for me on the short term. I'm not sure it's something that would work to me on an on a song scale, mm -hmm. because actually the one thing that she's doing that, well, that she doesn't even really need to add much to, that I really am enjoying on the song scale, is her vocals when they are closed and cut off and without reverb or after effects, very much like when the same thing is done to the percussion. That's probably one of my favorite things because it sounds like she's speaking to you, like she's telling you secrets in a, in a phone booth or something like that. <laughs> it, it really I, is. I feel that, yeah. <laughs> well, let's move on to Pirouette then. Pirouette, uh, you start off with this angular percussion again, a little bit faster paced, but 
very in intricate this time, and now also paired with a kind of submersed chord progression, which is something that actually is going to also kind of stay, but appear in different ways throughout the album. It's like the music of the water. <laughs> it's very warbly, and the only negative thing I have this time is that the, the chord progression here, this time, was a little too dull to defend, and that was just this C, C major, uh, E minor 7, then A minor, I think. So there's 1, 3, 6. That is pretty much the round, so anything else that you find in this track, you have to just look past that, because that will be the system that you're going to be in for a long time. I will say, though, talking about the the um, angular percussion, which I think is a great way to describe it that I hadn't even thought of. It, what I like about it here is it sounds even more physical and real, finger quotes, than the last <laughs> track. Like, it yeah. sounds like they're playing a physical instrument, which, of course, they could have and then fed it into, you know, whatever they were mixing with and then played with it. But it does have this sense of hearing something in a room that was physically being striped yeah. for a microphone. Whether it is or not, yeah, who knows? I would be surprised if, it was, if there is... If it is a recording that was made by Sabzi that was then fed into a drum machine, yeah. Like I feel like that kind of process just to me, it feels right. It doesn't mean it is right. <laughs> yeah, and sonically, right. I still enjoy that tone. Yeah. It was only the chords themselves that I was a little down on. And it also gets mirrored in her vocals. Once again, she's playing off of what's being done musically, with the uh, just to read them out, kind of how she did them. Pour my tea, pour my thoughts into separate beds. I just love the nursery rhyme nature of that kind of cadence. Yeah, she brings that back in kind of a different way this time because it's this heavy emphasis on the stress, unstress, stress. Yes, emphasis on the stresses and the unstresses, <laughs> which I believe is called a critic, um, it, which is, if you're counting this in metrical feet, it's a three-syllable grouping instead of the typical two-syllable grouping, which we don't find often, this three-group thing. But I think it's fair to actually count this this way because it's just, it, that's so obvious. There's a pause there. Pour my tea, pour my thoughts into separate beds, spilling out into clouds, whirling like a pirouette. Little added thing at the end there, but still, that's generally what you get, and it is kind of easy to get wrapped up in that. It makes you, you know, it's like a, a little bit of a blanket, a melodic blanket. Yeah, she had me wrapped around her finger right there, like from the <laughs> from the get go. No, I love just the enunciation. I love everything she's doing with her vocals, and I love how it is working with this change up to the rhythm, with the change up to the sonic scene that was being developed. It does feel like it's it's she's really feeding off of the ideas. So I don't even know if. Maybe the words came first, but it feels like the music was really designed first. And she was just like, well, this works. Let's, let's go with it. Let me see if I could get this down to it. It, it felt like a, just a natural progression of what the rhythm was doing. That's interesting. I also, I think, I wonder, one of the things that I really, one of the details that I really like about this track is that I think in... I think it's in the first verse. She sort of like steps on her own lines a little bit. Like she's not done mm. singing the last word of one line before she starts singing the first word of the next line. And they overlap ju like just enough. And that's why yeah. I think the words came first because sometimes there's like a little bit of an extra syllable or two yeah. floating around. So she's got to like curtail it, fit it in there or maybe let it bleed over into the next piece. But man, that little bit of tension is so good. Well, yeah, I think it, it, it's what makes her voice stand out. And I also like when she doubles her voice, like in the choruses on this track, you get the doubling and it has a bit of the um, the reverb even, but what's interesting is I Oh, it is a lot more ethereal. It's actually contrasting to what I described before. It's not closed in, it's much right. grander. And what I can't tell though is if it sounds like it's reverbing because of just the two, the, the doubling or if it's actually got reverb 
reverb on top of it. I think it may be both. And that's what's really interesting because it, it makes her vocals sound even more musical like an instrument in a different way. Lyri- like instead it's less about the cadence matching up with the instruments and here it's just the delivery itself. The lyrics are if I ever let you down, if I ever let you down, right? Yeah. And I actually, despite everything I said about the verse, I think actually this was my favorite part. Because again, that you can kind of dismiss the verse. I know you shouldn't, but sometimes I can. You like don't as, do that. as don't a dismiss the verse. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to. No, it's <laughs> it's not that simple because I do like the nursery rhyme nature of it, but sometimes it's like that isn't as much melody to me. It's a little bit more poetry based. So, all right, if, if that's where you prefer if that's where you prefer to be, then I guess then you're going to like the verse more. But I I really like uh, filled out melodies and there was something as simple as the chorus is I really really like that uh, d- Utilizing the same stress, but this time in melodic fashion if I ever let you down then taking the higher note on the next Let if I ever let you down and, and- I like that that course is actually seemingly an incomplete thought and it's repeated But and you could argue that it does connect to the bridge and it does connect to the verses a little but isolating it it is an incomplete thought and and you have to wonder like where her headspace is, either when she wrote it or when she's singing it, and I think that's also really interesting. But the chorus, I'm on the uh, the absolute opposite side of the fence. I was hypnotized by the meter of the verses and the pre-choruses. I was enthralled with the poetry that was going on. The chorus broke it up for me, and it, it removed me from just hanging on every little syllable. Mm. It The wash of it, yes, I'm not going to deny how beautiful it is, but it hurt the other stuff, <laughs> you know, and what? that if, was the problem. If, if the argument comes down to which is more innovative, easily diverse, and I, I agree with that 100. percent I agree. I also agree with that, but I also think if when I'm walking around, like what, um, what of part of this song am I humming to myself? And it is definitely the chorus. Like That's it. it has a mantra-like quality to yeah. it that I just find myself like I'm in the park, like if. If I ever let you down, like it's for whatever, like we for, chose a different lead. For, I noticed but. for whoever, for whatever about it, sort of makes it not stick out next to the things that are maybe more uh, have more personality. Yeah, it does. I think that it has a it has this thing that you can get stuck in. Yeah, it definitely uh, took me a moment to get the verse back in my head, but once it's there, you still it it still flows. But it it's I mean, nothing's gonna grab you like a, a short line like if I ever let you down. But let's swing back to something that Matt brought up because it's a really good point. It doesn't seem connected to what comes before it and what comes after. You have that condition there. If. Let's look at the pre-chorus. Love is sweet, love is dark, and it pulls your world apart so you can grow. Now I see perfectly. Oh, how it's clear. What I needed the most was you here. Enter chorus. If I ever let you down. If I ever let you down. Then we go to verse 2. Spend my time, spend my dime, waiting for the train. All of these memories float around and ricochet. Like, it's an isolated thing. Mm-hmm. There is no there's no clause. I mean, ultimately, it's connected in the fact that these are all the things that she's thinking about and that is related to a, a relationship, whatever that relationship is. And so they are connected. To, they are both connected to that relationship, but there is no... That's the go between. There's no direct connection between them, which yeah, is it's, interesting. It's more of a grammatical thing in the yeah. end, and and yes, that is really anal. <laughs> I do. I think that there's. When I think about this record, I think of a kind of hazy picture. Yeah. There's something about this record that I think once you start getting to the deep details, yeah, 
it actually loses focus. Like by yeah. trying to focus mm-hmm. on it, you lose a little bit of focus. And I find trying to figure out what the what the lyrics are, what she's trying to get at, like what the story is being told, yeah. that like the most useful strokes are the are the broad strokes, which I think is maybe kind of the thing that yeah. you're you know, it's like, oh, you could try to figure out how it connects, but the broader stroke is maybe more useful. And it actually does point to the fact that impulsivity, which is something that I feel like we often kind of pan on the podcast, it's like if something feels impulsive, then it would go against the, the quote that I said I was going to quote you on forever now, and that <laughs> is that the thing, solving problems has a certain logical nature to it. But yet here, I want to flip it around because when the Sabzi as a producer is more impulsive, when she's more impulsive as a vocalist, those are the twinkles. That's, yeah. that's the... There's the real gut. That's yeah, like the exactly. real, yeah, the heart. Actually, what you're describing is uh, pointillism, which is point artwork. Where oh, sure, you, you get, get real dot, close. Dot, you dot, can dot, see. Dot, dot, and it, when you view from afar, yeah, you get to the full picture. But I definitely see the imagery that you're going for with this. Yeah. And I got to I gotta say, I agree pretty wholeheartedly with that because not everything is perfect. It's rough, little... and there's diamonds in the rough, and that was why I just saw before. That was the expression I was looking for. Let's okay, find more diamonds. Let's find yeah, more diamonds. Okay, okay, I definitely... <laughs> all right, all right. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> sorry, I had to say it. Track three, Murakami. Um, all right, so out of the gate here, there's going to be something that's pretty obvious. We have that reversed part. We have that opening it's... section that is <laughs> It's completely lyrics backwards. reversed, yeah. We did not do the work that maybe we should have or no. maybe we shouldn't have. Exactly. I, that's what I so I came in and I said I didn't want to know what is the being said. So and I felt if, so off the hook. So even if so even if you had done it, I would have said, "Don't you dare tell me. Yeah. I don't want to know." I was I was this close too, and I was just like, "Oh come on, that's if I, just too much." Work. If I had to bet, I would guess that it's part of the reversed. There's a, a sort of faster, more rappy. How many times am I going to say the word rappy? Section less uh, verbose than hip hoppy. Yeah. So let's go with it. <laughs> um, but despite that reversed section, because it kind of appears almost like the opening soundbite in the first track, like there, it's it's there and then it's gone, and you kind of just have to forget about it for the time being. Um, but the funny thing is, just the overall tone of this track kind of came across to me as like a diluted reggae track because the chords themselves feel almost like it they're like a steel drum that's the, the sonic effect of it and this time it's even more minimal it's just two chords this time minor one major seven minor one major seven and we just do that over and over again but it loses uh the sharp beginning edge of this of a steel drum strike it's very smooth those uh, it's, almost, sanding, it's almost pipe-like. Yeah, yeah, the sanding down of those edges allows it to keep from being a harsh percussion. Well, and it allows what, it to uh, flow through everything. This was one of Morton Feldman's things when he would tell people to play piano as quietly as possible because if you change the first 10 milliseconds of the attack of a sound, the human brain has a harder time figuring out what exactly the source is. Interesting. So I wonder oh. if, you know, it could, who knows? There could be some truth to that. Sabzi might have been like, okay, if we just change the steel drum, give it a, <laughs> give it a slightly longer attack. I've been thinking about Morton Feldman yeah. recently. <laughs> hey, you know, you never know. Um, yeah, this stuff makes its way. I would like to bring up uh, an interesting question because I, that I didn't bring up off air, but I need John to read the first verse first because I know he has it pulled up. And then I want to uh, present a question to the, to the group. I hear the bells, I hear the wind, I hear a song in my heart again. In the tenderness moves all things, like a poltergeist in the streets. It's a silly rush that I used to get singing Billy or reading Vonnegut. I could teleport to the stars. Kind of strange that I'm all alone. And so my question is, who is Billy? Like, singing, she's singing Billy. Is it Billy Jean by I Michael Jackson? That. 
Or is it an artist named Billy? I would have guessed Billy Holiday. Say Billy Holiday. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm what, because of the era. But you're it, focusing on the wrong part. No, I'm Vonnegut. not. Vonnegut. No, 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 no. But I think this is actually something interesting, and it's important in certain lyric writing that I really appreciate. And though it seems like a silly point, I do want to make it. Is that kind of obscurity to a lyric? The fact that you don't finish exactly what it is allows people to ruminate yeah. and it allows you to get invested in the narrative and while yes of course it's kind of silly to argue what well, she's Well I mean not not, not to, that the references necessarily are obscure but why bring them up why right. in this instance why them Right and so I think it's really interesting that she lets us decide what Billy is Well it's also it's a great stage set like I don't know how you guys read this but I read this as like she is literally reading yeah, she right. has a book open she's you know like on the couch there are no bells you know, there is no song to be to be actually heard. She's but she just hears talking it. about this. In stuff. the tenderness of the text, moves all things. Right? There's she is a, a picture. She's is being alone. Painted. This is a, a a source of rumination, kind of, yeah. but maybe out of doing something like yeah. that moment where your mind temporarily drifts from the thing you're trying to concentrate on so much that perceptions get distorted, like in real time, but. And I guess it may, does make sense because, of course, this was a little bit more of a minimal track. So we do have that push. Like, we have a few... I'm not going to say the opening tracks are, are clubby, necessarily. But there are is a, there is a dance side of this album, and then there is that very inward side. And it's a pretty big component, I think, of this track and of the album as a whole. And we do go down that rabbit hole. Actually, verse 2 really poses a very interesting, almost existential idea which I think gets addressed kind of appropriately, I guess, with the music. It's just a story, though. Is it a story, though? I can't tell if it happened because it felt impossible. Don't know whether it was real or a dream. Imagination playing tricks on me. That's the change of perception that I meant. That plus the references to Vonnegut or actually the title itself. Murakami. Murakami, yeah. who is, from my understanding, because I didn't actually read him, an author from Japan who is sort of the Japanese right. version of Vonnegut. It writes a lot of stories where you're not sure what's real. Yep. Characters don't know uh, and they're all, all, You solved one, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember reading in his bio uh, references to specifically the phrase glitch in the machine so when stuff like the dubstep shows up or when you, the hook has that kind of scatty electronica in contrast to the verse like it's showing that the ideas that are popping out of her head are being like replicated or transmuted to the music itself Right. And it's important to not brush past what John just said, the dubstep part. So this part where... <laughs> so for, for all to the part, two, min two minutes and 26 seconds, if you need the... I mean, it's the thing that happens in the song, as Mike Rugnett put it before we began. I mean, it's just so obvious. It's just the contrast to everything that happened in the song and everything that happened to an album. I, it wasn't simply like a little more. It wasn't an added touch. It wasn't the things I was describing for, before where it's like, ah, oh, little diamonds, a little glitter. This is a full-on marching band, like, sousaphone interlude, yeah, Things I are felt. fundamentally different. Fundamentally different, but it was very energetic. And interestingly, the following... Sudden, too, though. The, like, there was nothing leading to it. It literally just happened. And the There's following verse. There's even a little verse. bit of silence. Before. Yeah. There is. And then the following verse actually carries over the after effects of that segment. Because right. it has the same brass in the background, but this time played a little bit more staccato, as if played on a 90s synthesizer. So I got a strange effect where all of a sudden I felt like there was a live band there. Like, oh, that's a far way to go for a session musician, you know, uh, tool. But then I realized, oh, it's synth. Or did he modify it? did he? I don't know. Yeah, it was just it so felt, sudden, it felt so fast. Cheesified. And and what's interesting also is that when it comes again later because it does happen again, I the identical thing happens again but in a slightly different way because there is a little bit of lead into it and lead out. 
but the first time it's dead, like you have a second of silence before it happens, and it just seems so interesting. And we'd be so quick, I think, the past uses. Past uses? Anyway, to. <laughs> past use guises. Past use there you go. Thanks, Mike. Tense said it's work. 15th participle of Um would have written that off as unconnected and disjointed. But I think it actually works for the song being so kind of strange. It just felt right for some reason. She also has a a, a little bit of a change in her vocals, or at least the pronunciation of certain words when she hits her higher register. It's almost like she tightens up her vocal cords or even her tongue a little bit. And as she's singing, there's a little bit of clipness at that very high register that I missed the first time, but on the second and third listen of this track, it was like it was like another little glitch, but something that she was almost reproducing organically. And I, it was another like little bit like that just started blowing me away. This change in timbre was just enough to really allow her to start doing what the music was doing. Are you talking yeah. about? Is that in? Is that verse two? Are you talking no, about it was two? towards the end of the track. Okay. Uh, yeah, with, yeah. I believe it was the final part of Ain't That a Story Though? Like You Ain't Even Know? Somebody switching the digit on my Casio. And I believe it was the, yeah. f- the word Casio where she gets high and everything just, everything tenses just in her voice. And, and I don't it, know why that was subconscious that I related that background effect to being a 90s Casio. It was actually the example that I was thinking of and I swear was not looking at the lyrics there. That's yeah. the first time I, the first several times I listened to this song I was like, oh yeah, she's, before I figured out like, yeah. oh, things don't add up the the digits on her Casio calculator. Yeah. I, yeah. I oh yeah, everyone yeah, keyboard. I, yeah. I went to Casio tone for the painfully alone. Yeah. This is why sometimes I try not to look at the lyrics beforehand. I do it on the podcast. That way you hear the reveal. This is real time. <laughs> yeah. But, but also I think it, it, what's interesting about this song as a whole is it's the first time now we're really getting something that's kind of undefinable. Like the whole, I mean, you can define the whole album as electronica, I suppose, and pop, but he, like that moment, that loud noise, I wrote like rock metal techno, which it's not necessarily any of those things, but it's also this weird con- cacophony that it could be all of those things. I really do want to make a case for its connection to the Inception sound, which I know this, yes. is, weird. this is now the second time we've yep. mentioned the Inception sound on this podcast, but I really do think that it, it fulfills the dramatic function and has the same yeah. shape as that kind of sound, which is always about a kind of warning, an yep. unsettling of things, yeah. like the state has changed, you should be either worried or alerted, um, and it, it just it has that oomph, that's that exact same kind of oomph to it. Which yeah. goes to show that acoustic, even though it may be synthetic acoustic achieved by yeah, electronic means, there's some, it there, still yeah. shows that brass can do the same thing as what I believe in in uh, Inception was probably all electronic, was it? Uh, it is. It does have a brass ensemble basis to it. Right. But uh, maybe this was Hans, on. Hans Zimmer says uh, to it he added some electronic nonsense. As he does. As he is wont to do. And before, before we wrap up this track, we should also mention that like we had the reverse vocals in the beginning and then some Japanese during the track, there's also... So there's female Japanese during the track and then male Japanese at the end of the track, which of mm-hmm. course we also didn't do the homework and look up what they were saying. But... I mean, I would like to think they're quoting Murakami, but we don't actually know that. But I think it's interesting also to mention that I like when foreign languages are used in a song and I don't bother to look up what it means. It I is can... interesting to mention that you like that. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can 
consider it instrumentation in a way that, like, for a very long time when I liked Rammstein, I just heard angry, loud lyrics. I didn't know what they were singing about. Yeah. It added to more of the instrumentation of that heavy industrial rock music will, instead of being something that I had to figure out. There will always be intrigue for us stupid Americans that do not speak more than two languages, at least most of us. So then we hear it as instrumentation, we hear it more as texture than we do in other language, and frankly, I would relate that exact mystique to the same kind of mystique that we feel during the backwards yeah. stuff in the beginning. Um, because it's essentially a foreign language. To our audience, we're not meant to get it right away unless you do the research after the fact. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this is the first track that we see two things that come up again and again, in the re or not again and again, but at other times in the record, which yeah. is, I think this is our first record scratch. Yes. yes. We have a record scratch in here. Some some DJ proof now. Which is a, which is a thing that I normally dislike. I, he I heard the test before that came out, but sure. <laughs> and our f I think this is our first significant pitching down of the vocals into... Uh -huh. Yeah, the vocal, the warped vocal clip, which goes, kick it out, <laughs> yeah. out, out. <laughs> I don't know how that impression is, but that's basically what is done here. And it occurs again several times throughout the album. Like you said, this is, it, it probably, I don't want to say glitter. This is not the the time to use the word glitter because it's so <laughs> warped and very dark glitter dark glitter but hey, oh, glitter let's face it i'm kind of also laughing at the same time because yeah. it just sounds goofy it's it's not just warped it actually sounds like someone is turning down the pitch like maybe it's actually maybe it's her maybe it's a female volume but it's turned down to sound like she's now a baritone well i think and at the at the end of the track you do get that doubled like kelsey singing at normal register and yeah. then the pitched down happening at the same time and you know that's a thing that there'll be more more of absolutely later. which i believe happens in the next track mantis so the, uh, speaking to like effects and how they kind of warp the tracks. I mean, this song starts with this kind of, uh, <laughs> using it's very a, technical terms, a very swishy, glitchy kind of sound that it, it does. It kind of whooshes like a wave or something liquidy. Almost. All right, I'll, I'll raise you one. <laughs> okay, do, it, please. It, to me, it was more of a, I mean, I'm going to go back. My word of the day, I think, is submersed because I yeah. feel like the, the synth has this sensation of being underwater half the time. And this one, it, it, in each and every case, it seems to be getting more submersed. So, but the funny thing is that here, it feels like that submersion had gone completely haywire, like day in the lifestyle. You know, at the end of the Beatles when everything starts raising, it's kind of that that slide that sounds like absolute chaos, as if it was sped up and more stuff was added. But then we kind of release it into a slow jam, yeah. which think, is interesting. I think of this as a total 100% narrative device, that we just left a song that's about getting lost in a fictional world, not knowing what is real and is not real, and that what you get at the beginning of Mantis is you're like emerging out of the fictional world back into, here's the record. Well, then let's look at the lyrics on that exact comment. Don't worry about my broken heart, worry about my broken heart. Incense and Bibles, I'm running down the crystal lakes, my patience on the pavements. Pour my lament out in porcelain, crowd my thoughts with love. Don't worry about my broken heart in my chest, wherein my best colors bleed out all my fragile parts. You want to fight the craze, I want to rise to lift this weight. Whatever price I pay, life falls better in the blueness of your poor bed. Lie my forehead, let my sweetness ride around your waist, and fault lines into gold mines, where your blood shines, cause the earth to quake. I'm seeing crazy revelations, I'm singing lazy incantations, I'm seeing your face in my chalice, I'm singing your praise in my palace. Sweetness, rise around your waist. <laughs> 
I can't believe I just did that. But she's not just singing. It's not just no. as beautiful as it is. As beautiful as it is. As, I love well, I wanted beautiful. to get that out considering we, we were starting to build a theme here. So I wanted to get those lyrics for yours truly, audience, if you prefer. But the funny thing is that, like you said, this is more of a freeform R&B. But not like entirely freeform because the melody is fixed. But it it's like, it's not set to the beat despite that there is a beat. So it's the loosest thing that I've seen on the album yet. And there is so much just awesomeness in certain little bits <laughs> of what gets sung. Because there is a artistic texture that gets thrown on some of these lines. Uh, like the line, crowd my thoughts with love, don't worry about my broken heart. Or, let my sweetness ride around your waist. Because what happens there is, there's a harmony, but it is a antithesis harmony. It is the opposite of harmony because she gets doubled by a downturn like demon voice which is just there in the briefest of moments a line here, sometimes just a word or a, a couple of syllables ending on a word that adds that glitchiness we got in the previous track. It shows up so heavily here and shows like a deep dark undercurrent to all these thoughts. It's like this album's version of the T-Pain microphone. They use it as needed. <laughs> it's there, obviously. It's not the same voice at all, but it's like, it's but, that go-to thing. It's the only vocalizer effect that seems to be used. But it's not just a, an effect. It's not just being used to, to make her more beautiful. Her voice is already beautiful enough. It adds a layer to the story that she's trying to tell that is just fascinating. That there is a, a split personality showing up, a, a manic side to this depression that just pokes through every once in a while. Because yeah. well, it's adding a drama, and like Mike brought that up earlier with some of the other parts that kind of ring out or that are sudden. Like this too is adding a kind of drama and a the theatricality to the song. Yeah, I mean, but comically also, like John brought up off the air, it kind of sounds like the Satan voice from the old live um, Blink-182 records. Like when they would be, hi kids, it's Satan. <laughs> like it has that kind of tone. I could do, I could do it. Like that kind of like exactly. like the Why old school the, the, that old like cheapo microphone like the thing that makes you sound evil. But it but it doesn't sound as cheesy as that. But it's reminiscent of that, and it's just an interesting thing that I would not have predicted to hear. I think of it as being pretty vapor wavy. I yeah. think of it as yeah. as it's in that same uh, like vernacular of. Who's who is ahead of who? Is the music setting the pace? Is the are the vocals setting the pace? Um, who's playing off? Which element is playing off of the other element? And like, how do you sort of give it that that soupy feeling? And also yeah. the nostalgia element and the kind of feelings that vaporwave is, I guess, designed to well, a kind of a make of it what you will sort of sensation. But there is that in this track because, of course, in those lyrics, again, it falls back to what we had in the first track. That sort of emptiness in her life. She wants to risk lift this weight there's a lot of fragility that is started to, starting to pack on pretty heavily at this point in the album despite the occasional moments when it just sounds very kind of poppy and happy and clubby but it's like we said in the beginning there are contrasts yeah and i think those contrasts are continually what makes it interesting i think yeah. there's other stuff that makes it interesting but that contrast just bumps it up a notch yeah. i think it's um i think it's also it was a great it's a great move in this this track for them to start with the you know sound effects of you're submerged, you rise to the surface, yeah. you start the song, and then it comes back again. Yeah. You, know, you have that you have this sort of drum fill and then you go back into this noisy world that you then reemerge from. And I think that sort of based on that, I, I wanna make a case for a a sideways reading of the whole record 
that's, I think, actually kind of cliche, but also kind of fun if you piggyback it onto the thing we were talking about earlier, which is, like, if you step back, try to sort of just get the broad strokes, don't get caught up in the details. And I think maybe one other reading of the record is that these songs are not necessarily about romance so much as they're about creativity. And that the hmm, key to that is Murakami being about ostensibly a writer, a novelist, a storyteller, the act of being creative, what kind of meaning you get from from cre- creating works. Or we could go the Kilgore Trout route and say the artist in this case knows that she is a figment of an imagination and is questioning said existence. Like, this might be two layers deep in some ways. Like, like you <laughs> gotta man, go... keep following it. Yeah. No, no, it's, nope, it's... totally see it now. Here's the thing, read all those lines. Didn't see it, but I, I mean, I was safe enough not to say relationship, because I didn't think that was yeah. necessarily it, but I didn't have an alternative at that time. You read further, and then you read back. It's absolutely there, calling to you, wasting all my good intentions. It's all right to falter from these heights. Don't know what you do. I'm chasing all my lost inventions. Can't make this right as I'm floating through these heights. I like that line, I'm chasing all my lost inventions perhaps like a these not the starving artist but rather the the a writer's block type of an artist right their worst fears all come to fruition it's really it's really interesting and that's uh layers 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 yeah <laughs> and um, the last thing i want to say about this track is just since we're talking about contradictions I've, I've mentioned how much I really, really like that sort of closed-in, close-to-the-mic vocal style, but because that chorus later at the end has that more distant effect, like she's obscured in a haze, I mean, it's kind of the exception to the rule here, but it's used enough that I came, even though it's my less my least fav- less favorite compared to the close-to-the-mic sensation, I think the pair really makes it more important when she is, like I said before, telling you secrets in a phone booth. Because yeah. if there wasn't that back and forth, then after a while you would just start to accept it as one thing. So something sonically that I like. It does. It plays. It does have a. Uh, I mean, I know we've talked about narrative now <laughs> yep. in sort of guarded, uh, you know, careful ways. But it does. Even if you don't like the sound itself, it still has a function that sometimes goes beyond whether or not it is itself enjoyable. Absolutely. And, and that that gives it a whole other sort of valence to it. Mm-hmm. I don't that final word, <laughs> which is a good one. Track. Five Panther. I'm getting tired of using the submersed feel, but it's totally relevant here. It's this wonky intro that actually segues into an electric guitar motif, but it's still, like, that electric guitar has, this time it's not the synth that has the submersed feel, it's that electric guitar that has it, which is kind of, again, a binding element for this album, but it has a pretty similar structure as the last track, because it goes right into um, this kind of delicate slow dance again. But yeah. this time it's made up more of multiple vocalists, but you, you still still, throughout all this, cannot help but focus on the lyrics. Feel you get closer now, closer than you've been, but I need you in my arms, my eyes, my soul, my sunlit skies. Yeah, I need you in my arms now, closer than you've been. I need you in my life, my eyes, my soul, my sunlit skies. And the, the, the swell, the melodic swell on I need you in my life was... It's it's something that I've been missing for a while because I haven't focused so much on melody. Like I wasn't, I may have not said it enough in the last track, but I wasn't as much a fan of the kind of freeform nature of it. I'm pretty close to melody on this album because I think when it's, it's when they shine best, and this is absolutely a case where you get it in the beginning of the track. 
So in other words, I don't have to wait for it. It's right there, which is a little bit of a plus for me. It's also, that's a good timing-wise after the last track, which had, you know, it's just one verse, two hooks on either side, yep. with some weird noisy things separating it out. You then get into the first more traditional um, thing that resembles a pop song, yeah. and they just give you what you want right off the bat. Yeah, which was at least enough to overshadow those chords, which I'm going to not do that again, but needless <laughs> to say, wasn't a fan, going to leave that on the side. And the music's also designing uh, a different kind of a feel than the last few tracks in that it's feeling a lot more expansive for me. Not, I don't know, submerged is the right way I could really visualize it. It feels big with all the echo that's going on, especially when those third vocalists step in. The third vocalist yeah, it's like that shout, like shouty of single vocal, words yeah. drawn out. Uh, sort of a, um, one of my favorite metaphors: screaming into the wind. Uh, it's it's sort of creating space without ever really changing anything on the other side. Yeah, there are very few additives to this track, uh, except really one, which I guess we should just get to, and that's the cello. The cello. All right. It was very, very beautiful, but I think maybe there's some disagreement at the table as to how we <laughs> feel about it per se. I would describe it as um, as unfooled around with. It is conspicuously yes. unfooled around conspicuously with. Conspicuously just kind of soloing and not in a terribly... Uh, it wasn't flashy. Yeah, not flashy. There's none a little of bit stuff. of room. It's not crazy close mic'd. It's also... This, but the room isn't a strong statement. Yeah, I really yeah. can't come up with any anything... To it that is like really exaggerated, except, except simply there is cello. Yeah, and I mean it's something that hasn't come up on the record yet. Doesn't again, as far as I can recall. And right, what Mike said about it being kind of just left as is does seem odd, considering everything else, and that nothing else has kind of been left alone. I think I would describe it as respectful. Respectful. It is respectful of the cello. Whether or not that's a good decision or a bad decision, I'll let you guys argue. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, know, I, I mean, this is the thing. That's the beauty of this podcast. Your opinion is as valid. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, of course, my, incl my inclination whenever I arrive at a, an interesting instrument that may just be a, one single usage of it, it's, my inclination is to really enjoy it because it's something new. It's something fresh. It can really save an album from feeling so stagnant. But my question here quickly, like by only a few phrases of that cello, it began to, the question began to dawn. Like, did it save it? Because it was just sort of... Like, even when it was looped, the, the track wasn't terribly effective for me as a whole, and I came to think of it, like, back in, the, in the, the, the way I described it at the outset, which is that it goes into a delicate slow dance, and I realized that that's kind of what this track was almost in its entirety, and I couldn't come up with any, any, any fluff, any, any, there were no diamonds in this rough, <laughs> and it's not even rough, so I don't even really have that to go off of. I think it's because, to me, this was basically utilizing a similar form that had already existed on this album, but to just less interesting avail. I don't know. I, I don't know if that could be quantified. I think it was just the harmonies. I wasn't feeling it. I'd like the soloist ideas, and when harmonies were thrown in, or when the ideas of harmonies were thrown in with the Satan voice, like they were done as like art pieces to contrast and create discussion on ideas. Here they were just to try to accent a voice that was already gorgeous. I don't think they added anything to it. Maybe if it was a solo rendition, I would have felt more to it. All right, I'll give it that. Had the harmonies, had the melody, at least in the chorus. So you're right, there's not nothing. There are yeah. things, I guess it's... 
I hate to boil tracks down to tally marks, but sometimes that's the way it is for me. Well, I think for I think what I, I'm going to possibly I'm going to postulate what your problem is. Sure. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from what I know of you, Steve, you tend to if something comes in that seemingly doesn't have purpose, you tend to like it less. We talk about cliches of saxophone notes that ring out in pop songs, but they're just kind of they're there. there for an outro. And so I think yeah. maybe your problem with the cello, whereas I'm I'm sensing me and Mike had less issue with it, is because the cello was there, but you don't feel like if the cello wasn't there there would be a huge difference. This wouldn't even be that much of a discussion if it wasn't for that pre-listen, which we always like to do because it sort of brings yeah. out these issues <laughs> where all of a sudden it's just like, yeah, I was very respectful and I'm looking at my same notes and I'm like, like too respectful is the way I could probably paraphrase yeah. it. Be like <laughs> respectful to the point of nausea. Be like, do something. Right. But, yeah. And so I think that maybe that's something that's interesting about the dynamics of this record and this track and where it might be interesting is that the interpretation of it is where the interesting point lies. Not necessarily the content, as Mike would say. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but I think it's really in how you perceive it here. The fact that the cello for me is just something, oh, that's pretty, and I like it, but you are going, well, that's pretty, but what else? Yeah. The relationship and The relationship that I see, I think, is between the woodiness of the cello and that this is, I think, some sort of like like muscle stretching for how to make a drum machine sound for lack of a better word and I hate this word organic yeah, yeah. Uh, that like I think this that's that for me this track is is a relationship between what kinds of sounds go into a drum machine and come out still sounding the way that you would want them to sound Word organic has the same subjectivity as like saying something is honest or yeah. genuine or, or warm. Uh, or, yeah, uh, yeah, we were yeah. guilty of yeah. that yeah. one too. Warm, warm authentic. Can, <laughs> even you know what, warm can actually work well because that's what it is to you. Yeah. But genuine and honest is what it means to them. You don't know what the hell it was yeah. to them. You'd only know from the work. And so, yeah. I, but I just want to say, I think I think also this is some of the best. Um, lyricism in some of the best lyrics in the record. Like I just I, really, right, yeah. really love the first verse. I'm glad you came back to that because that's something that I was I really wanted to get in uh, after I've been talking ad nauseum about that cello. But still, <laughs> yeah, you got this. I think maybe it has some of the best individual lines. Specifically, let's just look at the first verse. Just a quick wick, summer flame, burning in the glass. Gotta dig down low to stay lit. Crazy can't stay long and you want to move fast. But good things take wit. Give me your devotion, baby, and we'll set the charms that thrill me so good. Feel the race of our hearts, strip the paint from the cars, steady as we move. Don't got money on my mind, go and search my thoughts, only green on my riverbanks. Throw my pennies on your line to fill you up, pour my love down to make it rain. It. I just particularly like that line, throw my pennies on your line to fill you up. There's, again, I, I realize my in some instances uh, my, my read, my reread will bring out the meter. In this case, I'm not quite doing it justice, but I recall it being very a Effective. It's it's all about delivery, and it's not something. This is where this is where melody is everything, because otherwise, well, she'd be writing poetry. <laughs> and then the repeat of that verse that comes later, I think, is also it's super effective with the small changes that happen. Got instead of got uh, what is it? Instead of got uh, don't got money on my mind, we go to got no body on my mind. Yep. Go and search my thoughts. Only you on my riverbanks. Throw my hours on your line. No need to rush. Pour my love down to make it rain. Yep. Well, and what's interesting to me is when Mike brought up before that, see me, because I'm kind of a hopeless romantic, as annoying as that can be sometimes for other people. Yeah, as not as John nods. Um, 
I tend to go to things that sound like relationships. I lean towards relationship. But now that Mike brought up that it could be about creativity, I really do see it in the lyrics. And I think it's an interesting perspective that what I like about this album so far, and we'll get into it more as we go further, is that it has a versatility that sometimes you might not even be aware of till someone points it out. And I think that's really fascinating. I'm a hopeless romanticist. Yeah. Which <laughs> just means that I will chop it down until yeah. I'm standing on a ledge somewhere, like on the cliffs of Dover or, <laughs> or Cornwall. Looking, looking meaningfully out into yes, the surf. Exactly. Paint me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On, on that note, on to track six, Ghosts. Um, this might be the fastest percussion we get on the record, for sure, up until this point. It still says, sounds organic, as we've been saying. But what's really interesting here is that it's the first time it sounds really clipped and machine-like while still sounding realistic and organic. It's going towards the wooden side. At the same time, it's going towards the metal side that we got earlier. Woodblocks and cowbells. Yeah, and it's also got pops. And pops are, like... The straight up, you screwed up on the recording and you're hearing pops coming out of it, but set within the framework of the rhythm section. Right away, this is my favorite rhythm. It's my favorite just overall beat on the entire album. This is like a party jam. Yeah. I think it is like a party yeah. yeah, This is like block party music. Yeah, and I don't want to make it sound like the rhythm, like interesting percussion has not been present for the last couple of tracks right. because at the rate that we're talking about this album, it's <laughs> making it seem like it was an eternity ago. But here's the thing. There are tracks like this, tracks like Ghosts and a couple of them later in the album that really are on the complete opposite side musically of this like, you know, deeply depressing... <laughs> A bit from column A, a bit from column B in terms of the kinds of things that she is depressed about and that you see in her lyrics, then all of a sudden here, you're not thinking about that. No. Even if anything is there in the, in, in, the, in the lyrics themselves, you're not thinking about that in terms of the music because the percussion is just so irresistible. I mean, after the woodblocks and the cowbells, this, this, the pace shift has really kicked it up a notch, and then suddenly the synth bass shows up. And I love the sharpness of it because, again, that's another contrast here. There's just this eruption of happiness during uh, the verse and especially the chorus that I thought was irresistible. In fact, I found myself moving to it, and there hadn't been a track on this album yet that had spurred me to do that automatically without thinking about it. So, yeah, I one thing, just to, in his example, for instance, why I really love the, the chorus, is how she keeps melodicizing the word out. Yeah, she gets she is out and wow. Out and wow. Out, out, just like seemingly broken by two separate tracks, actually. It's it's her, and then it's her doubled again, but not doubled, not not vertically, but rather just following herself, but overlapped slightly, and it's a separate track, and then they were mixed together to sound like there were two of her just kind of freeforming, going back and forth. I think you could almost do an entire listen of this record just paying attention to the echo and delay effects that go on the vocals. Because yeah. there's there's so much and they're so artfully and judiciously applied yep. that they're like worth talking about in and of themselves. Yeah, I would really love to know the creative process there, in fact, as to whether like she sang something and she wanted it, like, can you just mess with this a little bit, you know, Sobsy, or did was he like, he heard the original track and he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tear it, yeah. that up? I don't know. I have it, no it, idea. There's this kind of surgical precision with it that feels like it could be either. Like, and I think it's... <laughs> Second speaks, uh, album in a row, we're using the term surgical, surgical precision. precision. But I think it warrants it here because because I don't, there are no moments here so far where I feel like there wasn't intention. Like, it was just haphazardly thrown in. I feel like everything that happens has happened for a reason. I mean, I could be wrong. Again, we don't know what their intention is, but that's the sense I get. I'm going to turn that 
down just a little bit because I think some there is some impulsivity here. It's mm. like I said earlier, and when it's here, can't say why it's different from most of the albums I experience, but here it works. Yeah. I think that's actually what this album needs because remember the form is to me very structured. To me, even if there's it's sometimes rearranged between verse and chorus, verse chorus or bridge, and when they there's solo if there's a solo. A lot of times it is shuffled, but to me, there is still a fairly organized nature about this album that it needs something to break it up pretty harshly. Yeah. And that's what that, that's what that serves. And the contrast that they're portraying here between the very rapid and really technically heavy rhythm section and her breathy, angelic voice, which doesn't have the problems or the, I don't have the qualms I had earlier where I felt like it was kind of weak here. She feels like she's a little more solidified as a character or at least i'm i guess i'm used to this or i'm i'm accepting or i feel like i'm starting to know who this person is i also think that there's i also think that there's something about this delivery on this track that works against the instrumentation that might just contextualize it differently yes and that's that's actually what i was leading up to when uh, she starts that second verse I take it that you won't lose the feeling. I drove all night while you were sleeping. You're in my vision, sent me down low. And then the, f the final line here. Don't have a sissy fit about it. Just, she's breathy with it, and there's a little bit of attitude. It's a little bit stronger, but because she's so breathy about it, don't have a sissy fit about it. But with the kind of rapid, almost aggressive nature of the rhythm, I just can't help but feel like... I should be either laughing or running away at this point. <laughs> I think this is a denial track a little bit. How do you mean? Um, only in terms of, I just I just want to ride it out. I just want to ride it out, out, out. And again, when you take the music into consideration, it's just it would seem so weird that this would all of a sudden be such a, like a lift up for the album. Like the problems don't really. They've, they haven't left because it's it's a little bit of acceptance. All right, I know you want better. I want to see you break. Um, I want to see you break. Feel you let go when the steps stay at it because I know nothing about it. Like, I take it that you won't lose the feeling. I drove all night we were sleeping, what you just read. Everything is a little bit of acceptance with a hint of I'm not okay, but I just want to ride it out in the meantime. Like, so, like, I don't think it's come. denial. More specifically, it's just wanting to get through. Like, that's what riding it out essentially <laughs> means, is that she wants to get through the hard part, the difficult part, the rough part, to get to the part where she can start that's creating. What I mean. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. All right, yeah, yeah. denial it's, was it's, a bit of a heavy-handed word yeah, it's, for it's, that. It's more like trying to find a way to cope, even, or, or process. Yeah. And I think that's really what the lyrics do here. And I think her delivery is, is, is everything. I think it, and at this point, like, we, we've heard a lot of really great, beautiful female vocalists, vocalists of all kind, male, female, on this podcast, but she's got a delivery that I feel is wholly unique to anyone else we've heard before. I don't know that I would say she's the best vocalist because that's kind of an empty word, but it's definitely she's definitely one of the most interesting vocalists we've had. On I in will a long say time. there's some dependence here, but yeah. that's fine because we're looking at a work that consists of the two of them. In yeah. other words, I don't think her vocals would be as impressive to me if it wasn't without uh, without his production work. And well, I don't and think I, his production I, work would be much of anything without her vocals. Yeah, I think they work well together. Speaking of which. Mm. Can we talk about them 80 synth sounds? <laughs> let's. let's. Uh, also, well, I mean, do you, does that include the DJ scratching or scrubbing? The, the wiki noises? Yeah. The wiki I think wiki? We, can, we can include the, those. Actually, the DJ the... term is scrubbing. So I'm just, <laughs> oh, wow. Well, it's not coming too. from DJ now. No, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I liked it, despite that I usually don't like it. I think I might be in the same boat with you here. Or, I think I, or was I? I love the synth 
sounds the like 80s big almost like holy chords it's yes. like yeah. very sort of heavenly okay um, yeah, the, the the DJ scratching noises are things that All I right, that's separate. tend to have very little patience for, but I am I'm down. I ex- it's tasteful I, here. I accept I accept them judiciously applied. Um, judiciously applied. Uh, but I think there's there's something of like a weird like anachronism to this track that I don't know what to do with. Yeah, I don't know mm. what to do with the fact that like oh suddenly this is like. We're sort of in the mid '90s, early 2000s, maybe. But yeah. those '80s synth sounds kind of want to take you further back. But they like, also were kind of, like they crept up on me in such a gradual fashion. Mm. The thing is, in the last few tracks, I may not have used the word. I don't think I've said it yet, and it's kind of a miracle that I haven't been relating something back to the '80s because we find it so often. It is something that I am personally tired of. The kind of we oh god, we talk about this so many times. John brought up the 30-year rule, the idea of always going nostalgia back to 30 years because those people are a little bit older and that's what they want to go back to. So they we will find it back in media just naturally. And I'm getting exhausted by it personally. I don't know. Maybe it's just because we're, we're doing what we do here. We're a little maybe more exposed than most people. Be. If they're, I don't know. But the point is, it had been here earlier on this album. Like, I kept saying a submersed feel. But in many ways, that could just be easily applied to the kind of vaporwave thing that you mentioned, which right. very often like uses... Dull, synthy, yeah, yeah. Which 80s, uses a lot 90s. of 80s things. So I, I feel like in retrospect, I could visualize it that way. In which case, this was a gradual step toward it. It wasn't like, whoa, this track is way too 80s for me. <laughs> it, like, I don't know. That's not how I it saw kind of, it. It felt kind of like a time paradox almost. Because it did, at moments, feel like kind of a 90s... R&B track in very specific moments and then those 80s synth sounds ring out but then it does have that 90s 2000s kind of electronic sound to it too and so I felt like it was kind of all over the place in a good way though like it was just kind of playing with a bunch of different things Yeah, it was kind of drawing from a lot of the nostalgia factor of like car chase scenes or better yet Miami Vice kind of wow, scene I work and things I would like ne- that I would never have made that I mean no, sure no, I'm, in, I'm into it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me wrong it's, there's a lot of movement going on there's a lot of just the ideas of movement being presented in the lyrics and everything like that so it 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 you want to work on that and throwing in little bones here and there and ideas just to keep pushing it forward is sort of speeding up the track or the mentality of the track speeding up the idea that you're barreling towards something or you're running away from something and you're the pedal is starting to get heavier and heavier you're starting to you know get that speed up there so what happens next in lunette the following track is sort of a a great contrast from these two. And with Silver Droplets, I would say that these three pieces really tell a story almost unto themselves. Because with Ghost, we're starting our, a, a journey of some sort. With Lunette, we get a, a pretty interesting introspective kind of, I guess, epiphany. All right, so we arrive at Lunette, which is an interesting moment for this I guess this type of track to arrive in this album, because even though we talked pretty long about Ghost, I enjoyed, just to, to kind of close on that and sort of see this as a bit of a divider on the album, I enjoyed jo- Ghost from the standpoint that it is probably one of the most upbeat tracks from the early part of the album. There's not too many upbeat, upbeat tracks on the early part of the album. In other words, it's kind of a standalone object of, of, uh, of intrigue purely by the fact that it's, it's different. But... Lunette is actually using some of the same tools that were used earlier, and it's developing them. It's a developmental kind of track. It takes that and it expands on it, which is something that actually this album is a little bit thin on. Like, it has some constant elements. It has some things that are wildly new, like, oh, that track, that never appeared before, and then in that track, that never appeared before. But here's something, the, once again, submersed synth feel, 
they're moving it further and further along and oh, to miraculous levels. This track was my favorite on the album. I'm going to just say that straight up. And it's because in many ways, it's the climax of that sound effect. Let's go back to chords here. Every chord in this case doesn't just strike with the same tone or timbre as many of the previous tracks. Instead, here, they roll and they ease beautifully into position. And in this case, the chord progression goes E minor, F sharp minor, B minor, and G major. So that's what you get, four, five, one, six. And the four and the five chords here, those first two chords, are both minor. So even though you're in B minor, you have a, a minor four and a minor five, which is already really placing you in the B minor feel entirely from the get, so that when you do resolve in the third chord, kind of an unexpected place, it feels so free-flowing. And the only glimmer of hope that we even have in this four chord progression, because we had the spell of rumination, is that fourth chord, and that's the major six, the G major chord, which actually offers us some emotional fuel to keep going forward, because the cycle is otherwise so depressing. Beautifully depressing, but finally I found it. A four chord progression that I'm not dismissing entirely. In fact, <laughs> I want more of it. I want them to keep going with it. This is why we do this. And on the lyrical and vocal side, we get, I'm racing the sides of the cars, because they glide when I'm riding through yards, but only at night, and I like the night, so gone when I'm caught up in things. Symbols and Copernicus rings can make the heavy hours fly. I'm far from the streets of L.A. Chateau of Le Corbusier. Long arches of reinforced concrete stones stretch out and tell me what's good. Strung out, but I know that I should focus and practice this love that I've lent you. Okay, well, we're working upon the symbolism of the previous track with movement right off the bat. I'm racing the sides of cars. But the way her vocals are working, they're working so heavily in tandem with Steve's four chord progression that at times they even falter, they even fall back. So instead of being a contrast, instead of being a, a clipped, heavier version that rings out every once in a while, they actually take a backseat. And this is the first time the vocals are actually taking a backseat. Well, because they take a backseat into that thing that I've talked about a lot that I love, and that is the sort of closed-in phone booth effect. Wow. And this, I think, is a more exaggerated version of it, and you, you're getting her intimate thoughts here. So you're finding it from all angles instead of just a few of them, and to me that amounts to a much more comprehensive empathy. Well, I would say absolutely I agree, and that these are the most tender and intimate her vocals have been yet, I feel. Um, I mean, it also helps the framing of this track has some things that would on upon maybe being on their own, a little cliche, work really well for the structure of the track. So we have a sleigh bell sound here that seems pretty ever-present and like physical, like it's just isolated. And then kind of like a twinkling chime sound as well. But blended with the rest of the instrumentation and her voice, it doesn't come across as cheesy. It, you know, I don't want to say it's warm or organic Oh, either. in many ways, this could be 80s lovemaking. <laughs> right. Like, it, it could so easily be cheesy, but there is a blending effect yeah. that I, I feel not just, you know, for the reasons that I mentioned at the outset, but also even just because of the keyboard, which I'm not sure when you said uh, the sleigh bell effect or when you said the, the chimes, that may have actually been the, the, the keyboard, which is certainly a little bit tinnier this yeah, time around. Yeah, the, key, the keyboard mimicked a chime in the kind of the way it flowed. The sleigh bell was for sure a sleigh bell. And the first time you hear that keyboard is in the beginning, which is immersed in a pretty fantastic improv over those four chords. It really bulks them out to make them feel even fuller than they are. I particularly enjoyed the second round of that chord progression. This is the very beginning of the track. I'm throwing back to that. The second time we resolve to minor one, right? The keyboard now takes 
the C-sharp, which really deepens the impact of that resolve because it adds some some oomph. It adds that second degree of dissonance, or I can't tell if we actually have a seventh here, so I don't know if it's a full ninth chord, but it was good. It was really, really good. So again, it's not just the same thing each and every time you do the loop. There's something of substance. And then there's the rhythm section that comes off as like falling wood, cluttered wood together, just hitting and then being used as an instrument of itself. All said between the tinier metallic noises, this falling effect, and the vocals. Everything is just so fragile and almost gossamer. You're afraid if one part breaks, the whole thing is just going to fall apart on you. It's so... I, f- I want to give her a hug from as scary as previous parts may have been. Like, this is the track where you're just like, it, it's going to be okay. You you don't have to worry. Like, you, you want to be able to tell this character everything's going to be all right in the end, and you don't know if he can even make her believe it. Chorus was my favorite. I'm always where you've been, but where have you gone? I'm not allowed to know. I'm not allowed to go. And I, that's that's the part, like we said earlier, there's there's parts, there's choruses that stick. This is still sticking with me now. It comes back again and again and again. It probably will be with me for several weeks to come. So that's always a perk for whenever an album is brought onto this podcast. I The thing that I always think about this track is there's something about this whole record that is, for me, very California. It's very... Uh, like golden hour, sun drenched, uh, like party, t- not party time, but like that kind of uh, like lifestyle. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not explaining this attitude well. No, I understand it because it, here's a little analogy for why I understand that. And it is going to bring us to the next track. Track eight, Silver Droplets. Well, I just want to say before, uh, sure. you, before no, you get to the next one, Go I just want to say that there's that, that, for whatever reason, I find this track to be the most, like, golden hour, Hollywood Hills, like, after after a party, like, sunsetting. It, for some reason, it just strikes me as so place-oriented, and I don't, I don't really have a, an explanation Well, that's interesting, why. because this, this, this track is actually, it only says urban to me. It only says urban and cosmopolitan even, but, like, the witching hour of that environment when you feel like the loneliest person in the world. That kind of thing, but that doesn't specifically reach out LA. It could be New York. We're here in New York. Of course, that's kind of where our brains go, where that's where my brain is going. But to bring it to Silver Droplets, if we have nothing else to say I about I do that, have something right. else to say. So <laughs> Wow, that we refuse to. On, <laughs> well, to further explain Mike's point, because he's saying he's, he's even not sure how. So I was in LA recently, and something that... I learned hanging out with people, friends of mine and friends of my wife's that are in LA is that they they treat work as seriously as New York does in the arts to a point, but they also take their recreation very seriously. In New York, we tend to work till we can't work anymore, and then we work some more. You know, Mm -hmm. we do take our leisure seriously too, but often we weave it in and out of our work it doesn't take its own place. Whereas the sense I got in LA with the writers we hung out with and a few actors we hung out with is that they work really hard, but if they're doing a nine to five, when that five hits, they hit their leisure and they hit it seriously. And I think there's a sense of that in what you're describing is that there's this idea that the the witching hour, this kind of sun drenched moment as the sun's going down, everyone acknowledges at the same time it's time to relax on there's a change of state yeah that, yeah and so that's that's Maybe. what i wanted to add to that because yeah. i think i get a sense i got a sense of that from when i was there that's interesting and so 
Now you may compare this to <laughs> I am so rarely Droplet. the one to try to push us along here. I always have that last point to make, but I, this does really relate because in Silver Droplets, I know this is a little bit of a, of a maybe a shallow view of California. Surprise, surprise, I haven't been there, so I can't actually speak to it. But I do understand the weather is pretty beautiful. And despite it says Silver Droplets, we get first this electric motor hum, which then just comes to a break. I can't really make sense of that at this moment, but I do know that what follows that immediately are these chimes, which impressively are very rain-like, in fact, drizzle-like. But to me, they were so delicate that this is not a torrent, this is a sun shower. And to me, it did feel like the kind of light, delicate rain, the, the rain you'd expect to appear in L.A. It actually, to me, kind of is the West Coast feel. There's reflections, there's gleams, there's rainbows and streaks, all these things in those little chimes that... It, it does put me in a place, effectively. Maybe not for you. <laughs> it was thunder. It what was, was thunder? Kissing thunder. That break. Oh, that's that's thunder. pretty good. There you look go. Look at you. There's a couple <laughs> different ways you can look at it. Um, I saw this as either, either a storm or, to put it in a separate context, without actually saying it was the actual physical thing, I feel like this is sort of a metaphor for a car crash. These three tracks... Ghost would be the spurring event that caused recklessness. Lunette would be the instant before the crash. The and flashing silver, before your eyes kind of thing. And silver droplets would be sort of like the crumbling, the crashing. And those silver droplets, those little metallic chimes that we're getting, could be the tinkling of glass or anything like that. This is because of the content you here. you saying that's what it is or is just the impression it's giving you? The impression it's giving, okay. the tragedy. Right. And I'm using car tra- crash as like a stand-in for a tragedy. All right, I would just loosen it a little bit on silver droplets and I'd simply say this is kind of an appeal to prayer of some kind, or at least it's a moment of weakness in which those kind of analogies are being made. Because obviously, all right, you have, I'm singing like a choir in the darkest night when the streets are empty. I won't fade out until you ring to call me. There's, again, to repeat the word, Fred, She's kind of at the end of her rope here, but there's an appeal, and you get that in a lot of things. You get the the prayer-like appeal in with the organ-like hum in the background. This and also sort of an unorthodox melody for the album because of how slowly she's singing. Usually she's a lot more you know staccato and playful, but here she even sounds kind of choir-like, and the organ helps to bring that out. The chords bring it out, and go figure, she does say it outright. I'm singing like a choir. Yet we also do have the reappearance of our previous character. Your favorite thing. The demon voice, the dark voice, the manic voice poking through. And I think paired with lyrics in this song in a way that makes it a little bit more threatening than it was in the last. Especially because lines like, I'm singing like a choir, is specifically paired with that manic voice, with that dark voice. I won't fade out until you feel my power? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty. Things are showing up. There's an aggression in this song that is subtle, but it's there and not it we haven't like besides getting that voice before, there wasn't this hint at aggression before in any place that I can think of. And that's why I want to liken it to a metaphorical car crash here. Because right. it's it's a breaking of of something. It's a tragedy in itself, but it's all mental. Lines like or how to clothe my pride, where it goes from her beautiful of mountains in their youth to paralleled with that that darkness or how to clothe my pride when you take a such a heavy shift from one idea to the next not just lyrically but also in it, an anti-harmony you're getting something that definitely is showing a, a deeper level a, a more meta level 
in in the mind here. I, I'm not I'm not seeing the layers. I think that you're seeing. I I think this to me is a little bit self except that I don't know what the thing is. Like, are, is she still on artists' issues at this point? I mean, it's hard like, to say. I, I think that I think the 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 vocal the lyrics rather have been obscure enough that you can kind of put them anywhere. I think here also it's still the same. It's maybe. Speaking back to what Mike had said earlier in the record, that the more you focus, the less focused it feels. The object is the only thing that's obscure to me. The 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 words themselves, like every feeling that she conveys, and actually pretty, you can surmise it from track to track. Like I I understand where she was before. I kind of understand where she is now. I just right. don't know what it concerns. Which is actually kind of par for the course for a good lyricist, especially yeah. if they want to keep it broad and open enough that as a pop track you'd really want people to be able to kind of imprint on it. I also want to say briefly about the track's title, Silver Droplets, that it kind of gives up the ghost a little bit, as it were, as far as the tones you were describing earlier. Like, I know you said off the air, you would have probably still imagined them as some kind of droplet, and I agree. But, like, Silver Droplets, I mean, that's exactly a perfect description for yeah. the tone here. And often when dealing with anything instrumental, we often l- lean on the title sometimes. But I felt here... That's why this... I was laughing, because if only it had been the track Ghost, where you're like, this track kind of gives up the ghost a little bit. <laughs> like... But I think it, it's interesting to me here that it both doesn't and does bother me that it does that, yeah. because I feel like I probably wouldn't have pictured it differently, yet maybe I would, but I don't know. And it's I, I like always being put in that position. I, I got glass. I know. Because I didn't look at the title, because that's how I listen. Because you listen to it in the car, not staring at your phone, because you're a good driver. Well, let's not get we'll, go with, that. we'll go with that. We'll All go right, with that. Sure. Well, that's true. All yes, right, let's go to track nine, Cry. Um... Oh boy! This <laughs> is a very difficult so, time identifying the initial noise that you hear. Uh, we did find out; we're pretty sure it's a pig squeal. A pig uh, some, squeal. Someone on the internet said. said someone so. on the internet and said. Take that as it's worth. That was after the, I had cycled from dog to horse. I originally heard it like a horse whinnying, but it wasn't quite that even because the internet you, doesn't you feel, lie. You well, <laughs> you hear several different sound effects of that animal, but. It obviously sounds, to a certain point, it sounds like the animal's in pain. Yeah. I mean, it felt like animal animal cruelty, perhaps even something supernatural, but that's only because of the clips there. Those, those, again, those hard splices and then the other sounds that it makes, it like, it transformed into, from that whinnying sound or squealing sound into a more human-like glottal vocalization. And then that gets retooled and utilized for the remainder of the track, not pervasively, but often enough as the kind of hook, like just as a little rhythmic hook, a a motif that just meshes with the beat. And then by that point, the fear that I felt pretty strongly (laughs) in those first few seconds had kind of melted away, which made me wonder in the aftermath what the overall point of it was, because it wasn't terribly integrated if you just set aside that motif, because it really was just a couple of notes, a couple of little, little ba-bums, and that's all it does for the rest of the track. That's a little bit of a problem for me only because of that shift. Like, I almost wanted them to go down that rabbit hole a little bit, but... Well, we also... I'll take it. I, I think it's well, also... You want them to push... I want them to push... The, the, like, the challenging exactly. sort of sonic... Yeah, that's yeah. usually where I'm at with this album. Whenever I get something like that, expand on it. Give me more of it. I feel that. I mean, I think that also it's important to note, though, this is the first time 
it do- we get something that, at least on the outset, very superficially feels divorced. Most of the time, everything on this album at least felt connected somewhere in the pantheon of this record, at least. Yeah, because after that, we're pretty much back at our usual, you know, water-like backdrop. Well, this one I- is more defined sounding like actual water dropping like there is an actual droplet sound effect yeah she's crying style, yeah. we have water now right yeah. and but otherwise it yeah it is in the shape of a, a slow jam essentially we're getting another even, kind of r&b-esque track it even has the kind of a sound bite being used that that a hit a hi-hat yeah an electronica hi-hat which is like a default setting kind of shorter like I don't feel like there's a whole lot of interesting things going on. It felt a little bit... It felt honestly safe for this album, that there was no boundaries being pushed. The vocals aren't... Like, they're still good. I mean, she still sounds beautiful, but there's nothing unique or pushing or boundary-breaking I felt the same thing about the melody, that it was actually one of the few melodies in this album that was a little bit weak in most instances from the verse into the chorus. But it does beg the question, is this kind of track that only because you felt something so strongly in the first two seconds, is the rest of it really as safe as, let's say, maybe a couple of the other tracks we described earlier on? Or is it really just a relative thing? Well, because it is almost as if it were a jump scare, almost. Like, you're not expecting that kind of a sound. It's shock value. Even the volume. I mean, we had this big discussion on volume at the end of last week's episode and how, like, all right, certain static volumes, people get accustomed to them for for a certain amount of time. They get accustomed to this volume, and then every, every once in a while, provided... The uh, producer is not really just towing the line. Every once in a while, they will just kick it up. It's key moments on an album to shock you. It's to the point where you may actually have to turn it down. Because, of course, if it's a section you love, you're probably going to tend to turn it up in the end. But throughout this album, if you've already achieved that state, then I don't think you're going to be able to take Cry. You're not going to be able to take the opening <laughs> sound bite of it, for sure. Well, and it's in that in that spot in your um, hearing range that has a little mountain in it because yep. it's you know the the pain yeah. pain communication frequency range. Yeah. So I mean, even if it's quiet, you're still gonna it's gonna get your attention. Clearly, that was the intention. Let's yeah. just look at the lyrics here, see if there's anything to support it. Verse one: I love the way you talk. <laughs> The way you're asking me please over and over. It's getting hard to stop the shaking in my knees over and over. I love the lines we draw, amber and indigo. Oh my baby love, you make the heavens show. You make me cry, 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 cry. This ain't no silly, woe. I'm not wrecking my metaphors whole. I'll take it by the horns, then ride like I'm queen of it all. When I'm righteous or ready, when I'm callous or crazy, when I'm crowning the top of the world, when my power is frightening and my destiny shining, know that I'm always your girl. See, and so what's interesting to me here is that the lyrics sound very sexual, and the, like, it's thinking of like a crying out in pleasure, in per se. Yes. But the cry that we heard was, what we're assuming at least, was not a pleasurable cry. To us, it sounded like something in pain. Now, it may not be. Wait, oh. is this a big joke about, I'm going to make you squeal like a pig? Oh, oh God. I mean, Jeez. I hadn't thought about that, but it could be. I have never... It has just dawned on me in this very moment. And, the, yeah, that's not a thing that I was thinking... My heart thinking is sinking in my chest <laughs> as it's just dawning on me, too. I will, I will say, I think one of my... F- 
I really like this part in the middle of verse two where she says, when I'm righteous or ready, when I'm callous or crazy. I think it's during those lines where you get a, like a doubling of the vocals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you get this sudden sort of change that, you know, like you've been talking about, Matt, like every once in a while there's just this little thing that grabs your attention. Yeah. And I think that this this comes at really interesting points throughout the record. Like, And I think there are like almost always these points where you could argue that it's, she's like, talking to herself yeah. or she has mm-hmm. summoned some sort of version of herself to converse with because it happens in Mantis too where she's talking about you know like she's casting a spell and then True. there's a moment where she's discussing a kind of uh, p- like plan of of attack or, yeah. or and it may go like, hand in hand with like how her vocals are mixed in that instance as well it's a yeah. different side of her and shade yeah and it's just interesting I mean now that you bring that up as as Strange, but not strange. That could be for the album. This would be the only thing, though, that would feel definitively like it's relating to a relationship. But then again, people take all sorts of pleasure in the work they create. I mean, and there's nothing to say that something you create artfully can give you not necessarily sexual pleasure, but it can give you a euphoric state like something sexual. When I'm crowning the top of the world, it could easily be that moment. Yeah. Like a kind of climax of yeah. creative, you know, f- it is completed. Like, this is my soul Like a creative euphoria. Yeah. I know I was the one that suggested it, but I definitely read this one as being very sassy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think this is just, this one's, this one to me reads pretty on the nose. Yeah. Matt, Matt's trying to make this G-rated. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what? It's it's just, I like the, the, the fact that a lot of these tracks do have that obscurity. Yeah, you can, ste- you can step back from it and you can, yeah. And this one, I feel like you can too, but it does seem more on the nose than others, especially when you put it in that light. But that said, also, because Steve said that we do get the pig shrieking throughout the track kind of mixed in. And then at the end, we do get a clear cut again, and it kind of Where is... Where it's more like we heard it in the beginning, a little and, more sharp. And those moments do seem... To serve no purpose other than their purpose. And what the, I mean is, like, musically, they don't seem to serve any purpose whatsoever other than to explain what is then later mixed in. However, for that shock value, which, if this is a sassy song in the middle of an album that wasn't that upfront, the shock value is kind of important to go, hey, here's the thing, <laughs> I guess. Like, I'm just not sure where I sit with it. I don't necessarily dislike the song. I don't. I, I can say I dislike the animal cry <laughs> at the beginning and end. I just don't like. Again, it's and just, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I want more. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that was that made me feel something. something the yeah. craving to feel. And so this is one of those places where I'm struggling to explain how it serves the song musically, but artistically, I definitely get it to a point. Yeah, hey, that's my argument. That's usually what I'm saying. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's fine. Okay, thank you for You're making it for him. me. You're teaching him. I yes. know, I'm learning. He, I learned him good. Um, <laughs> um, I think, though, unless anyone else has to, anything to add, we can move on to Slow Burn, nope. track 10. Let's go to Slow Burn, because it has a certain thing that I'm a big fan of. Well, then again, this was funky to me, Yeah. even though it doesn't use the same instruments that you would expect in funk, but hell, it's all fair game. I mean, it's, it's a dance... It, this is the first... So. My I think th- of this as the dance song. This, this is the like dance song. All right, let's yeah. just set funk beside. Uh, maybe and just like certain components of the rhythm because of this one and and a, and a four and one and and a, and a four and this that little riff is really irresistible and it's usually used. It's 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 marimbas or yeah. this electronic marimba, whatever, what have you. That's the sound that's being used to create this. So you wouldn't think it would be really like funk like, but then the bass joins in and meets the marimba, and then at the end of it, I'd say yeah, absolutely. At least I enjoy it in the same capacity. And 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 not to forget we did mention in Cry that it did have kind of a dancey sound at moments and I think that was kind of like setting us up to receive a full on dance track and 
I mean, I have to say, it's all those things that you kind of want in a dance track. It's enveloping, it's catchy, you know, it's synth-tastic, as I wrote. Like, it's just, it's kind of a wash with these things that, if you're in a club dancing, you want to kind of get smacked with, essentially. Cowbells? Uh, I mean, sure. Smacked with a cowbell. And it's got the things that I usually rage about, like, say, a chorus that goes, you give me that burn, 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 burn. And I, I usually, I usually about? complain about a heavy repetition of, of words, but honestly... Uh, we're going full flow right here. I'm I'm on I'm on I'm on for the the duration of this ride. Like, it's hard not to be caught in the groove. Everything from the vocals aspect is just flow. You can't help but well, it's us. And hear she that does first one build and up just that, fall along. That really good uh, momentum, like we were talking about. A lot of times, the repeated stuff has you can you accept it because it does have a, a kind of place in the lyrics. And I think that that this is. I think one of the better examples of her building up the momentum to get into that yeah. repeated yeah. word. No, I would agree completely. It's uh, just even the, it's so silly that that simple word burn, 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 burn actually kind of gets caught in your head. Yeah. But it does. It's all because of the rhythm. It feels almost like it's like a chimiola a little bit, like against the, the overlying rhythm. And then you combine that with the rhythm that I said before, what the marimba's doing, what the bass is doing. This kind of stuff is really hard to, you know... To stack up and just say like, oh, well, that's better than that track, that's better than that track. If you feel it, if you're moving, it's achieved its purpose. Yeah, I feel like a lot of good, I'm using finger quotes good because I'm not the end all be all for dance tracks. But all dance tracks that at least get you moving, typically, if the lyrics are repeated, they're repeated in a way that you can almost forget they're repeated, sort of a yeah. speak. And I think that that's important to note here is that what happens. And, you know, I mean, honestly, it did make me move. Like, I did find myself kind of bobbing to it, doing the white man shuffle, as John <laughs> likes to say. And uh, That's all you can, that That's exactly what I was doing. That's right. what I was describing. Speak for yourself. I can actually dance. Eh. But be, be, <laughs> anyways. Only if it's funk. It, it did achieve its purpose, and I'm not looking for it to do more. So to be overly critical, I feel like is almost hypocritical at this point. No, I'm not being overly critical. No, I'm not saying, instance, yeah. and, and I'm not saying that you are. I'm saying that songs like this, you kind of just got to, you either get it or you don't. And if you don't, then it's not for you. But it serves a purpose on the record because it's still latching onto stuff that had come before, just utilized in a different way. There's a jam present. You have a bass solo. You yeah. have some little random noises thrown in here that are kind of those metallic effects again. But then I like how the phrase in the jam kind of ends. Like this lead in, it's something I've noticed that all right, you have solos and they don't always feel like they're going anywhere or like, all right, it's improvisatory material. So you can just sort of just take it at a glance, be like, all right, well, it's kind of free form. But normally they just kind of like end and then suddenly you're back into the verse or you're back into the chorus. There was something about the lead in here that it, it felt like the jam lasted for exactly the right amount of time. Like any longer would have been like, ah, now it's just guitar or marimba masturbation, <laughs> whatever, yeah. what have you. But then <laughs> just the way the phrase ends and just drops you right back in, ah, on a dance floor, this would have everyone by the horns. And I will say though, you, you mentioned this kind of almost, as we've talked about before in the past, masturbatory solos, when we move on to the next track, track 11, Forgiveness, yes. and I don't want to jump the shark, but we do get a solo that's not like that, but it's definitely show-offy, but in the best ways. But before we get to that, I think it's important to mention that jumping into this track, we get a sample of something that actually comes in the next track. The word gone is repeated here almost electronically. It's definitely her voice, but it's actually her from the next track singing those words. And it's interesting that it's sampled here before it's actually utilized 
as is, it's which is sampled. unique. It's a preview. What are it's a preview. precursor. I think of it as more of the kind of behind the scenes stuff that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, sure. You know, it's like a little bit of yeah. just or a know, soft opening sure. before we get the main show. But this one, this is also it's another dance track, something you can definitely move to. But here, the percussion's a little deeper rooted, and it feels kind of more primal, like. Um, it doesn't feel as modern dancey. It feels like something you would do like outside dancing around a fire or kind of like it feels maybe more beachy or, or, or something like that. The vocals have lost a little bit of the smoothness that we had previously. They're a little more clipped. She's a little more forceful and attitude driven. It's almost it's almost like the lunette style of fragility, but there's a little more backbone going on right here. There's a little bit more personality poking through um, because this isn't the, the previous track sort of like love-oriented idea here. It's... Um, I don't see the fragility, honestly. Where do you see the fragility in this in track? The, in the overall flow of the vocals, in the overall just like... I don't know. I don't see that at all. Considering this is this gong, 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 gong. I don't know. I for me, it's far too playful for it to really. Yeah. Yeah. It's this. Literally. The only thing about this track is that sonically, it's a little bit thinner. Like there's a lot of empty space in here, which gives Sabzi room to do his thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of intermittent stuff. This may actually be one of the loosest structured tracks yeah. in terms of those little soundbite effects, that material. But I think it's actually kind of hypnotic. Well, needless needless to say, and you, you alluded to it before, it is very playful. This track feels like the fun track, air quotes. Actually giving away what I was alluding to earlier, this is... A guitar, there's a keyboard solo that feels like some guy wearing a guitar and like rectangular sunglasses and a blue mohawk. Just, it's, it's just so show offy, but in the most delightful way. You can't help but snicker, but I don't lose interest. Like, I'm still intrigued by it. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's doing something that hadn't really happened before, and that's kind of dividing itself sectionally. Yeah. It goes through a, a verse, pre chorus, chorus where the rhythm section does. Like, almost takes a hiatus at one point where it transitions to, like, a completely different idea. Keeping the tempo, keeping the overall feel, but the actual sounds being heard completely change. That's kind of the empty space that I was talking. Yeah, like, yeah. there's moments in which just it recedes, and then another thing goes in. There's not a lot of, like, overlapping and blending. Instead, yeah. it's all about, you know removal replacement and i think we're also in that part of the record almost like i think yep. of slow burn as being the introduction to this idea we get a little bit less in forgiveness and then yep. we get what i would describe as like the fun track the next yeah. the next Fair. one which i'm not saying we yeah. should move on to but i think that this is in in the way that maybe it's like almost a well-made play yeah you know, like forgiveness functions similarly to maybe this the way the section of the record functions and to build upon that dead space from earlier you're also to, to, to reiterate my point I was making earlier I'm right. bringing two things together there was that dead section in the pre-chorus where everything kind of reinvented itself as at a, like a low key and then it goes back to the chorus with kind of a nod to the earlier verse that's where that fragility in the vocals shows up where she becomes somewhat submissive as opposed to the attitude of that gone 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 girl that was there earlier it's, if it's that's, a transformation. If that's, if that's present, then it's not where my focus was. Mm -hmm. Again, spotlighting. Like, to me, this track is really a sobsy heavy track. Well, it's also a kind of ooh, shiny track. And, I mean, the next one is really that. But here, 
it's like, here's a thing, and here's another thing, and then here's another thing. And, it, like, it feels like you're meant to divide your attention and focus on what you want, not necessarily yeah. everything that's there. Yeah, I'm not saying it's it's all cohesive. But, all right, I'll just say one more thing, because you started bringing up the guitar solo. Yeah. I loved it. Oh. <laughs> I loved it. As an isolated thing, all right, we want to argue context and all that crap, fine. But, no, as an isolated thing, it was really, really well done. If it was actually performed, who knows, or whether it was just, you know, programmed. But, but it that, felt, that it scale, felt that scale where you, like, go forward and then backtrack yeah. and then go forward and then backtrack, I think there's a, a name for doing that. It's almost like a Hannon exercise, kind of. But, you know, in keytar form, come on. I mean, and while it may not have been a keytar, you're right. It could just be someone playing it on the keyboard. But I like to envision it that way. In the mind's eye. Yeah, yes. it's just... Who will it's, refuse a guitar? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's really hard to, to do that. Um, but I think, again, there's a flashiness to this track that I think existed in moments on the album, but for sure it kind of culminated here and then is even pushed further beyond logic, I feel, in track 12. Pop it in two. Uh. Which... It's apparently a spiritual <laughs> As Micrometa pulls down from the sky in joy. <laughs> um, it had to be and, told. And am I correct if I'm wrong? This is a spiritual successor to Pop It In? Yeah, it's called Pop It In 2, and Sabzi has a song called Pop It In, which is this, it's a very similar song, Kelsey singing. Yeah. You know, I believe the lyrics were just Pop It In. Yeah. And that that might have been the extent of it. Just pop, just pop, just pop, pop it, it in. in. There you go. Uh, so it's, yeah. not like, it's not like a toy that you'd buy from the nineties, right? Like, like pop one it. Of the, yeah. Do you remember Bop yeah. It? Yeah. yeah. Pop, pop it. Twist just pop it. Pop it in. Like that would be. This would be the jingle for it. Yeah. I think of this as um, the 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 counterpoint almost to the smile and the laugh that starts the the, the beginning of the record. Yeah. Because I feel like listening to this, you can just hear Kelsey smiling the whole time. Yeah. Like this is the this is the funny and fun one. Yeah. Because because it yeah. is kind of ridiculous in almost every sense. It's just funny because it was an outtake. I assume it was an outtake from the previous song, yeah. which was then blended to make it seem like it was the intro to this song. But yeah. it was only blended because of the fact that she ends that la-di-da-di-da-da using the motif, but just replacing the the, uh, the thing that it was doing with the la-di-da's. Yeah. But then as soon as it ends, then second beat, boom, we drop it right into Poppin' 2. And that just... I know, it, I feel like it was an afterthought, but... Who's the wiser? <laughs> and, I don't know. And in and in this song is where she actually sings the words gone that were sampled in the previous track, which I think is interesting chronologically to do that. I right. can't think of other albums. I'm sure other albums have, but off the top of my head, I can't think of an album that's done that. So I think that adds to the playfulness and the, uh, the kind of symbiotic relationship of this track and forgiveness. They seem to intertwine. It's funny you said playful, but yet she says, don't play around. Don't play around. <laughs> right, don't exactly. play the fool. Don't mess around in my head. Go tell your friends to get off the wall and just pop. Just pop it in. You know what this actually reminds <laughs> yes. me of? Kind Another of, one of those choruses. Her cadence is very similar to like a Sugar Hill Gang song. Like like those kind of 80s kind of dance slash rap songs hmm. that they had done. And I think that it's just, it's the, it, again, those songs were, were very playful too. Like the hip hop, hip it to the hip. That, that's hip. kind it's, of that's, almost that's the same exactly, cadence that yeah. I feel this in. And so that's why I think it's, it's interesting. It's like even giving away more of maybe where their influences are from or where it's, they're pulling from. It's a simple one two beat there's there's it's 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 core is built around just one two the song three, is not about four. complexity oh yeah like it's, it's, it's nothing but the barest of ideas I think the this bass is, that comes in yeah. the clapping the nonsense la's and na's and oohs and everything like that at its core it is everything in the most basic building blocks of what a dance song is and it it 
just works for it. it. It really does just work with it. Yeah, and this is the track that you said. It's like a progenitor kind yeah, of like... Yeah, it's like the genesis of yeah. like the track for dancing. Yeah, it almost feels like it, it could be a fundamental beat that you send and you share with other you know producers and they could build on it. You could really do whatever you want to it. But it is, it is not complex. It's irresistible, though. Yeah. And it's, again, it has to do with a few things. It's the closeness, the, the crispness, the shortness, the staccato nature of the bass. These are st- simple tricks, but they work. And boy, do they work because even those stresses, you know, don't play around, don't play the fool. Like it just, you hear those, those accent marks so strongly. That's what really gets you moving in the end. And then uh, same applies to the bridge. If you can feel the beat, then why the hell we talk like that, that little, you know, swing style. And that's pretty interesting because in many ways, just that, that line, if you could feel the beat, then why the hell we talking is almost the argument that we've been making to defend (laughs) some of the more club heavy, you know, quote unquote, irresistible tracks in this album. Just pop it in. <laughs> I, I think this song as a whole... It's funny. Sometimes I feel like it's the antithesis to the entire record. And also I feel like it's the... It's almost like the climax. It's like where where we're trying... I know we're not at the last track. We're at the second to last track. Yeah. But to me, it, this almost feels a little bit like the the thematic climax. Of yes. The yes. I, I, I agree. Because because I, I guess we're all ready to move on to track 13, uh, Drexler. Wait, last thing. Last okay. thing. Okay, only Go because ahead. I was going through <laughs> my, my, my little list of all the You wouldn't be you if things. you didn't interrupt me. I have to bring up something else. <laughs> Specifically I'll, when I'll, you're And I'll bring segwaying. up something else after you, and then we'll move. Okay, okay. sounds good. So you all don't right. have to feel but so But I'm going to do the transition. <laughs> okay, all right, fair. just so we have the, the sequence of events here. Well, specifically, and this is very minor, but since I'm talking about, you know, the, the accent marks, you also have her laughter during... The bridge there, and yeah. I forgot about that. But that laughter, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, well, now they're just being too playful. Because, of course, we had the opening sound bite, and I'm like, yeah, all right, well, this is just, you know, the afterthought kind of material. But in this case, I realized it, it was a little more of a man-behind-the-curtain sort of feel. Because the second that laughter comes in, I mean, it wasn't just kind of there. It wasn't just, you know placed overhead for, jo- for the smile. Like rang it out. wasn't just it wasn't even just joyous it it was another tool it was yeah. another drum laughter was used almost as a drum i just felt it like work off of whatever beat just came before of it there's this syncopation there that again irresistible last time i'll say the word well and i think it's it's interesting cuz it, that also comes before at the end of the track you have the sample that's uh it, what is it like it do, like it doesn't matter what i do as long it as it only it's, matters if it's beautiful it only matters if it's beautiful which is like such a great like hey that's the record yeah. Yep. Yeah, like Here here's the is. final note. <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of like, hey guys, in case you didn't get it, here's <laughs> yeah. the point. <laughs> they should have actually added. It only matters if it's beautiful or funky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, track thirteen, Drexler. And so Mike alluded to this off the air that this track truly feels like what brings us back to the beginning of the album. Yeah, I think of this. I think of Drexler as being a like a poetic um, end point, but. Content and songwriting-wise, feels like it's going back towards what the beginning of the record sounds like. Yeah, it's it's a final soliloquy at the end of a of a narrative. It's the final little bit. And if you were talking about the man behind the curtain kind of a feel, this is this is the person behind the curtain coming out and Midsummer Night Dream style, like Puck showing up and explaining everything to you and sort of giving you. The morals or the general idea of what this was. Well, then, I, as I am wont to do, I think we should read these final lyrics in their entirety. You know I've been dealing sweetness 
All these peaches hella seedless, and I'm the chosen fruit of Babylon, under the Southern California palms. Your old timing is a sequence. Our numbers run into a completeness. When helicopter blades are winding outside now, maybe a hurricane would shut the dome lights out. Cause nature is the realist. She doesn't need my allegiance. I'm a buzz in her velvet battery. I'm the trust of her ancient anatomy. So I can dive the deepest and chase the pearl below the beaches, and you send you letters from machines in the dark blue 20,000 leagues of poetry about you. Baby feed me knowledge, something I can taste. I'm running out, so I'm coming down the stairwell. My dress is made of silk, trying not to sweat, calling out your name in the lobby of the hotel. And since everyone's awake now, we might as well make a scene. Yeah, since everyone's awake now, we might as well make a scene. It's it's funny this this final song puts me in an interesting place because I like when albums wrap around at the beginning, but it also doesn't feel like an endpoint. But that's okay as well. I'm not sure where I sit with the song, but th- thematically it does bring back the kind of drama, the the layered nature of previous tracks, the poetic narrative lyrics, and the inflection is a big thing. Yeah. The way she's playing around with her words. Oh, is we back. get the metal sounding percussion back too. In, I, I guess industrial electronica. I want to call it because it's kind of all within that same. It's a little bit darker than yeah. yeah. The, those same broad strokes that we do a lot of industrial rock it has a lot of similarities to the. These tones that are being I do, I used on the that, set. I don't know that it get, it goes that far, yeah. but, but I there's can see clanks. they're like looking towards yeah. that kind of thing. Well, I think also it does reach back to a darker place. Like, oh, we were having some fun, but let's get real. Like it, it takes that moment, and I and I like I like starkness whenever it shows up in this album. Moments that I would have found possibly um, upsetting or disjointed in other records seem to work really well for them here. And whereas with any other band or artist, we might have said this feels divorced from the rest of the flow of the record. I don't because I can get behind what you were saying about track two kind of feeling musically like an end and this being more musically like a return to the beginning. And I accept that. And I think it makes sense for the record because they've been pulling from other parts of the record the whole time. So to pull from the beginning to connect to it makes perfect sense to me. And that's why I think for me, I confess it's a bit of a ditto list. Like yeah. most of the things that I liked about the early part of the record, I don't think the finale here like shocked me or, or introduced anything terribly new. So yeah, it was, I kind of just took it at a glance. I'll just say one thing that I really liked about it, and that was the, the percussion loop, this sort of grinder sound yeah. of like these really, really quick, like, like almost like hundred. 28th notes relative to, I don't know if it's exactly it, but needless to say, it was very fast. <laughs> Periodically broken, though, in that kind of syncopated yeah, nature. Yeah, those are the ones that are sometimes, they're like sort of offbeat. Yeah, like there's like a roll, a really fast like in the in the beginning, and then it's like it's hard to do vocally, but you get the idea. And it was some pretty meticulous action when you consider that this is what Sobsy had to do, really just to add that one little layer to a track that overall didn't blow my mind but you have to focus on the details. Sometimes just look narrowly and you will find rewards. Right. He solved a problem with this song. He solved a problem. A problem that only he knew about, <laughs> but I'm glad he did. Which is why I actually want to go back to that, that, that monologue of Puck that you get at the end of Midsummer's Night. It has that same sort of finality uh, feel to it, which the monologue itself is removed from the play because the play culminates. The story is at an end, which is what we got in Pop It In. It was sort of like the last hurrah before end credits are supposed to roll. But here, this is this is half half uh, exposition and bring it back to where it was before, but also half kind of apology style that that same soliloquy was where it starts off with 
If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. I'm getting that same hmm. feel with Drexler. I'm getting that same sort of idea of, okay, we went through all of this, but remember, this is me at the end of the day. You, you knew that going in, and it hasn't technically changed. I think that this album is very malleable. So I think that I, there's no way to really say, no, you're wrong. Even though we like to do that sometimes. Especially to me. It's, I don't think that there's really any way to do that here. Because they do kind of leave it a little open-ended. I mean, I, li- I, mean, I really like that reading of it. Especially the, like, the opening of the track with you dealing with sweetness. Like all these peaches, like fruits of labor maybe is the, is the reference that's being made. Uh, you know, even references we get back to California. It's like, oh, look, it's maybe the degree to which this record is place-based is more significant than we've given it credit. But I think that's a, I think that's a really cool take. All right. Well, I drew the short straw, so I guess it's my time to go for the monologue. Um, I do think that in today's uh, discussion, today's analysis, we. We covered a lot of ground more than I expected to for this album. We weren't as contradictory as I expected. In other words, there wasn't as, like, disagreement, I guess, because we all ended up sort of liking the same tracks and feeling okay about a lot of the same tracks and a lot of the same different sections. So, as a result, I feel like some of the things that I kind of was just okay with were kind of just, you know, a little bit left in the dust, and I, I don't know how much that's going to impact, because based on our discussion, it doesn't come out too heavy. And like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be apparent by now, by and, this moment And you don't I'm feel speaking. like maybe that it brings it down even, because it just seemed to, we'd seem to breeze by it so easily. It wouldn't, it wouldn't feel that right, way. Yeah. I guess it's, it's a preface for how I'm going to try to reason okay. as to how much it factors in, considering it wasn't a big portion of the discussion, but let me just first say everything that I liked. It's almost everything that I said kind of previewed in the beginning, plus all of the stuff that you simply cannot introduce. The, the stuff that is easy to predict. When I said Sabzi is an amazing producer, when I said that he knows how to make a pop track interesting, then I think that's absolutely true. I think there's very little Deadwood on this album. Most of it is 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 useful. Or even the stuff where you feel like something is stagnant, there's always something in that just kind of flies from the right, and it's sort of like, ah, ah interesting. The interesting thing, it's like an IMAX screen. Like, if you're looking in one particular area, then, alright, you might lose what's going on over here. It kind of requires your neck to uh, do a couple of twists and twirls. I, I, but the question is, like, as a whole, the product leaves me feeling like there are always things he could have gone a little bit further with. But then, if he did that thing, then it wouldn't quite fit the pop formula that I think, think he really, it's, it's apparent, he's actively trying to fit in the end. He's trying to kind of keep it at a certain point and ride it to the edge, but not let it go overboard. And this is not even like experimental pop necessarily, it's just certain things here within that structure he really wants to utilize to his fullest. In those cases, it, it, that would be the, the little vocal shifts, the little warbles, the points in which the pitch bends, you know, they're silly. And on the face of it, they're silly, but they're used pretty well. The little wood blocks, the percussion elements that were there from the beginning, they are a constant element. In many ways, they're just kind of a, a, a static component of the album, but because of the way in which he kind of twists them around, he it feels like he could go through a Rolodex of different ideas utilizing those few elements. And I think that's pretty fascinating, and the same kind of applies to the vocalist. I feel like she could really master any melody, provided it had the, the pro and the con of, let's say, there being some kind of percussion 
section in place that was just sort of there, then her vocals, all right, sure, they would feel a little bit pulled back a little bit because they are taking the spotlight. And it's just this constant pull back and forth, back and forth, which I think is the most, one of the most compelling things in this album for me. But it does kind of take away from, like, the expansion on each individual ideas. It's all about replacement and removal. And I think that left me feeling a little bit, a little bit lacking for the album impact. I have a series of moment impacts, and that that's fine in a pinch. But it's like, well, it's fine in a pinch, and then you have another pinch, another, another pinch, another pinch. At the end of the day, like it's like a spice cabinet almost. Anyway, I could probably spill metaphors all day, but I think this is easily four territory because of how much it does. I generally, I generally put anything over a four if I feel like it is even just taking one thing and using it to to brilliance, bringing it to brilliance. And I think this at least has that one thing. But there's something in the the cohesion, something that just makes me feel like every track is always is always constrained and it doesn't quite get out of that barrier. And that gets a little exhausting, as you may have recognized in our discussion, at least from maybe my perspective, by a few tracks in, like seven, eight, nine, ten. Then it's like, all right, well, give me something else. But he'll always give me the original things in new ways. How much that puts it over the four, I think that that brings me to about a 4.2. That's about where I could put it based on the spasmodic virtuosity that I find in this album. Spasmodic virtuosity. Came to me. That is a mouthful. Uh, I I don't know what more I can really say on top of that. You expanded it very well. Thank you. Uh, the, the, yeah. Um, I'm a little bit scrambling right here, gonna admit that. Uh, we got, on its core, there is nothing on this album that is actually by itself unique. Nothing at all. The beats are extremely familiar. The tones, the cadences, the a little bit of the phrasing and the lyrics themselves, that would definitely push me forward. That would definitely be... A, a, a feature that is new and different. I bet you haven't heard an album with a pig squealing on it before. Yes, I have. Oh. <laughs> Virtuosic pig, by the way, was working at, you know. That's true. That pig was Union. <laughs> <laughs> but the tools that we're getting here, it's like you take the most complicated Lego set you could think of and make something different over and over and over again. And sometimes it's a four walls and a roof building it's sturdy it's it, it's got its own little simple beauty to it with stuff like pop it but then sometimes you get ghosts you get like crenulations and castle ramparts and things like that you get complexity which you didn't really expect from just blocks and angles and the same tools over and over and over again and that's where that sporadic virtuosity really does fit this album pretty well. I'm getting very familiar things and very familiar themes and ideas that aren't groundbreaking, but they're being presented in a very alluring manner. But at its core, I still gotta go lower than Steve because the fact that nothing really stands out as new, as anything outside of that realm, I'm I'm gonna make it just a straight up four. 
Alrighty, my turn. This is why I shouldn't go first. I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> disgruntled. <laughs> nah, uh, I, I think that, um, well, I at least... I will be re-listening to this album, and I want to make that clear. Right. Yeah, so, I will, so, too. So, that, that's... Incorporating it into my life. Whose turn is it? Come on, guys. <laughs> hey, you interrupted both of us, so... Nah. That's true, I did. Um, that's usually actually Steve's job. Steve usually interrupts the... Uh, right, go for it. Your anyway, time, Matt. Your time. Spotlight's on me. Um, no, I, I think that is an important distinction to make, because this... This, I have a feeling, is going to live where Blurry Face by 21 Pilots lived last year. Last year, that was a record that at the time we reviewed it, I think I rated it a four or somewhere around there, and I liked it. But then upon subsequent listens, I really fell in love with it and always went back to it, even though it wasn't a five for me. And I think this album lives in the same place. I am absolutely going to listen to it again. And like you had said, Mike, I think I will definitely find things that I didn't notice the first time upon subsequent listens. I think also what's key for me here is... Unlike Stephen John, I like it not being groundbreakingly new in all aspects or any aspect doesn't necessarily harsh a rating for me. Um, I will say what does harsh a rating for me though is things that just seem purposeless, and I have to admit that a lot of Cry, though artistically I get what they were trying to do, to me in my listen felt a little purposeless. Um, I don't think it's it, it's removed from the album. I by no means want to say it's divorced. I think it just seemed kind of, I don't know, it just didn't seem to know where it was going. And again, that could have been the, the, the purpose of that transitionary song into Slow Burn. But as a whole, I loved this record. I will definitely go back to it. I definitely, her vocals are some of my favorite vocals I've heard in a very long time. And I think that the fact that this attacks pop I like pop music unabashedly. I mean, I brought Rick Astley on when we reviewed it. A, because he had been on a 15-year hiatus that he chose to do. And so it was interesting to me that he was now releasing a new record and he's still making pop music. So what does that sound like to Rick Astley, who's known for stuff that was very 80s? And so that kind of stuff fascinates me. And this also is very much pop music, but done in a way that's not Lady Gaga, is not Katy Perry, not that I have a problem with either of those ladies. I happen to like them very much. But I think that this is doing something unique for pop that gets me really excited. And I would say it's groundbreaking in taking pop and making it not necessarily have to fit a genre. It can fit a multitude of genres, which artists like Beyonce, Katy Perry, you know, Lady Gaga dabble on song to song level. Like, one song will sound R&B, one song will sound more hip-hop, one song will sound, you know, more, maybe a little more country. This, on a song-to-moment scale, definitely sounds different, but has a through-line that distinctly puts it somewhere that you could dance to, that you could groove to, that you could cry to, and I, I really dig that. Um, I'm so psyched to go back to their, their previous records, because I think that if it's... Based on what you've told me, Mike... I, f I feel like I'll find more of this in that. Um, my overall rating is a little higher than both of you guys because I think that while they're not pushing anything new for music as the pantheon of music forever... I want to be clear, I didn't say that. Right, no, I, I said know. That. I said that. I know, John said that. Um, I do think that they are pushing the boundaries of what's considered pop popular music because pop is so stagnantly become your Justin Bieber's and those other artists that I've mentioned, which again, have their place, and some of the songs are good or catchy or all of them, whatever you think, I think this is doing those things but in a more interesting way. And so that's why I want to push it a little farther. So for me, this is 
a 4.45. It's as close as I'm going to get to a 4.5 without being a 4.5 because, again, I do think that I agree with Steve that there are some constraints to the songs. You can definitely get a sense that they're working within a structure that works for them, but if they just bled outside it a little bit, they could do some really innovative things that they may still yet to do in the future since this is more or less their sophomore album. Um, not necessarily their second release, but their sophomore album. So they're still a, a, a new project. So I'm very interested to see where they go. I think Sobzy is a groundbreaking producer, by the way. Yes. That, that, that I would say unequivocally. My conclusion. Wait, so how many decimal points do I get to use? You two. Can, you, two, <laughs> two. Two. No, no. Not uh, as many as you want. D- d- two. D- d- wait, I'm thinking about the Can the I do Excel, repeating? I'm thinking about the Excel document you can repeating. I have. How wide is that column? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's two. Four. Three. You're right, two. 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 It does, two. two. I mean, so I, I'm... It's this is one of my favorite records, so I just want to be like unabashed that this is, I think, probably in my iTunes one of the most listened to things in the entire database. Mm. Um, So any rating that I'm going to give it is going to be unfair based upon the hours and hours and hours that I've listened to. (laughs) We use them. (laughs) We will appear in the Excel document. Um, You'll have a proud place. I can, yeah, I can get you maybe a, a, a a readout of how many times I've listened to this record. Wow. Um. I think, so, things that I tend to like are things that I have to meet them on their own terms. Um, I really have a a strong uh, enjoyment of difficulty in artworks. Um, Like, I want an artwork to not come to me. I want it to expect that I will go to it. Um, And so, uh, I don't, what I don't mean to say is that this record is hard, or that it's like hard listening, yeah. or that it's challenging, and that it's weird. But I do think that there are tensions that exist within it that end up producing a lot of the same effects. So in the way that like Kelsey's lyrics are incredibly literate and really poetic and very sort of like finely tuned, like I can just dig into the text of what she's written alone by itself to try to find some meaning in it. And I will always find something new and I will always find a new relationship that that then has to the kinds of things that Sabzi is doing both sort of like his sonic decisions, mirroring the kinds of meaning that she's trying to convey uh, her playing off of his rhythms, him playing off of her rhythms. Um, But then also like within his own, his own set of responsibilities, he's doing things like, like putting acoustic instruments into drum machines, programming the drum machines to play like humans, except for that one spot. <laughs> and so that's just, it's like this, these stacks of, of tensions and contradictions that have that same, allow you to dig in the same way that a more classically difficult artwork would allow you to dig. And while I do, I do a criticism of the record that I am fully on board with is that as a record, it is weird. <laughs> it, is a, it is a weird set of songs to put under the same cover and say, here is our record. Um, and I think that maybe that's a reflection of the kind of piecemeal production process that got them to this place. Yeah. That, like, they've had, a, I've, they've had a lot of that. There's, you know, Sabzi released four solo records over the course of, I think, three years, some of which were a part of a mixtape that was incorporated into this record, but then also into another record. And, you know, Kelsey's on a lot or most of them. And so, you know, they have, I think, this kind of strange relationship to what a 
release is, which is not to say that it's an excuse, but it's maybe an explanation. Right. Right. Um, I was reading an interview with, uh, I think it was, I think it was both of them, and the record, and I forget who said it, but the record was described as an epic of contradictions. That like it is a story that they have told that is based on the kind of butting of heads of many things. And I think that's the kind of thing that always draws me draws me back. That, and I'm like a huge, you know, sound design nerd, and I, I just really, really like the way that the both of them tend to think about the sound of their differing, you know, palettes and the, the things that they make. Um, I'll only offer a proposition. Sure. Should he have been more contradictory? I think so. Yeah. Mm. I, think, I think that there are... Well, yes, yeah, absolutely. It's a subjective thing, yeah. but, but it, it's basically go... asking you to perform an act of free association sure, right now yeah. in your mind, given that we just spent you know, I think what two I hours would, with this album. I would think what I would say is that if they wanted to stay within their kind of like pop hip hop line that they're straddling, it might be difficult. Hmm. But if they want to move into, if they would want to move into other genres or just embrace contradiction more than any kind of genre allegiance, then yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there's like a restraint, it's like a restrained yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, if, no, but. Perfect. That works. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That that may be what kind of lowered my rating in the end from what I was more inclined to put it at based on the earlier part of the album. I think if he had kept raising the stakes... I'd have been at a much higher rating, although my rating is still high. And I think, much. and part part of me, I think, I ta- like, I understand that, and I think a lot of it is maybe like a taste thing that there is a like a straining to it. Yeah, that it's just not filling the air enough in certain spaces, where you have to wonder whether or not it's a shortcoming or a creative decision. And I think I just tend to read it as creative decision. Interesting. I so, I view it as like a, sh- a low lying parabola. That's like how close I get to feeling like it's it's reaching me and then it starts to fall back a little bit in terms of the expectation of it. Anyway, I'm just trying to get my last bit of conversing <laughs> in here before it is 100% your time. I'm done. For a rating, not knowing your rating system nearly as well as you do, I'm gonna say four point five nine. 4.59. I got to use, I mean, I never get to use decimal points in, a rating, in a rating system, so I figure if I have two of them, I'm going to use them. <laughs> I mean, when you like, look at the hundredth decimal point, what we really have is a 500-point rating system. <laughs> we just refuse to admit it. Yeah. But it's true that, like, we we see that crossing the, like, the four or being just above and just below as the equivalent of, like, an A-plus or an A-minus in the test. Like, there's something that you just feel about it even being in that vicinity, and that's how we, we see, like, each and every one of those stars. Wait, no, I agree, I agree with this. This is a great explanation. I want to revise, I want to revise my score. You can. Because okay. I feel like a dick. Let's just make it 4.6. All right. 4.6. 4.6. By the way, you convinced, zero. Me, you convinced zero. me to move mine up to a 4.25, by the way. <laughs> yes. I am four and a quarter. We uh-huh. did try to do, like, the imperial system of quarters and half, like 4.25, <laughs> and then Steve half. started screwing up the whole damn thing. <laughs> I'm so glad I did. You'd be yeah. lost to have all <laughs> these albums, 200, and it's just like they're the same. I would never have a, a 3.85 or a 4.98. Like that, the, the, I do the, have a friend who really argues against our rating system, like, vehemently. Is he it hates James? The whole, no, it's it's Pete, actually. Oh, of course He hates the whole concept of it. He's like, there's no difference between a 4.25 and a 4.3. I really like, None at all. Do you guys... Um, 
watch Anthony Fantano, the internet's business. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I really like his system of like strong six. Like you take away the decimal points yeah. and you give it like a strong, a weak, a medium. Yeah. I think that's. Oh, I tried uh, it's for like the... smiley faces after a check plus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. if, I, yeah. if I did that at this point, I would be robbing my soul of some really like necessary things in my giant tally list that well, I feel was, do. It's, it's mostly because sometimes we're like, oh, well, we gave that a 4.7 and it's better, but how much better? So it's a 4.7. This is, all, this is also why we have a year in review, so that way we can actually spend time there saying we've sit with this now for, you know, up to a year, and then we can say, all right, where would I put it now? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because time, time's malleability with art. Yeah. These times they are changing. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I put it as an artist would. All right, first and most importantly, thank you, Mike Ragnetta, for joining us on hey. the Crash Course Podcast. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Oh, good. Then you won't mind coming back sometime in the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, Already du- playing. Already double, rating him in. Double record next time. Double record. Oh, All oh, right. Yeah. Ooh. It's going to be challenge a, accepted. No, I am very interested wants, to see like what wants. the contrast would be. Like, I guess, would you probably go that other route with like a... a I would, if I were to come back, I would band? ask you guys to probably listen to something that is... Challenge, more challenging, more challenging. like more sonically adventurous. Let's put all it. right. Interesting. Great. Um, before we wrap up the show, and I have Steve do his read of our. We, so we don't always get fan mail. So sometimes Steve will read spam mail. Nice. And honestly, the, it's it's it's, it's, it's enjoyable. It's, it's good enough. Um, but um, why don't you do your plugs? Obviously, we've mentioned the uh, PBS Idea Channel and yeah. and reasonably sound. But I'm sure you have other stuff you'd like to plug as well. I mean, that's the long and short of it. You can find uh, Idea Channel on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash PBS Idea Channel. You can find Reasonably Sound at reasonablysound.com and also probably on most of the places that you listen to podcasts. A reasonable location. Yeah. Um, you can find me on most social media just at Mike Rignetta, and you can find Reasonably Sound and PBS Idea Channel at the places that you'd expect them to. Uh, at PBS Idea Channel on Twitter and at Reasonably SND on Twitter and Instagram. All right, awesome. He has that end to a science at yeah. this point. Well, he, 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 you do pretty much do it at the end of every PBS Idea Channel, running off the list of places <laughs> Such to find the on the internet. the life of a content creator. Um, so, but again, thank you uh, for, for joining us and bringing us this album. I know personally I will benefit from it as I will listen to it a ton. I'm so happy. Makes my heart sing. Um, Steve, why don't you uh, surprise us with our spam mail of the week? Spam. Hey there, clever elements. Now, how come didn't as I consider a lot of these? Off area of interest, barely, is the web article patterned solely from a powerful peculiar installation often do you receive a custom made layout. I possess a web page I'm hunting for to raise and accordingly the visuals tends several key considerations to complete at my catalog. Thank you, Basketball Jersey's Custom. Like, this is how aneurysms are born. Yeah, like, and and the fact that some of these have been long, short, and Steve's theatrical read of all of them are usually pretty on point. I don't know, man. I feel I want to send them some of my money. I'm convinced. I'm sold. You're sold. I'm sold. They should hire me <laughs> as their solicitor. Exactly. Come on. There you go. Giving them so much free advertising. Um, and before we close the show, um, actually, Mike had mentioned off air uh, a suggestion for us to listen to. So. We're just going to take advantage of that and make that our listener pick for next week. I feel so powerful. You are really control powerful. over your futures. You do. I uh, know. I was just wondering, we feel like such cheap shots right now. <laughs> wondering, not, wondering whether or not you guys were planning on listening to the new Childish Gambino record, uh, "Awaken My Love." Oh well, we because I, I, I know you're a fan of funk. Yes, and, and it is you know being touted as a 
as a funk record. So I'd consider bringing it on, but now that you mention it, I much would rather just credit you for suggesting it. Yes. So and he doesn't so, have to waste one of his picks. Right. I, mean, I can use my pick. Not that to would do something be a waste. Else. Like let's be honest. It's Your system really is strange waste. and arcane to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we'll take Go that on order. next week. Um, it's a circle. Again, I want to thank you one more time, Mike. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks uh, for having we're me. all big fans of what you do and keep doing it. Uh, we look forward to checking out the growth of all things Microgneta in Aww, the future. Thanks. I look forward to hearing the rest of, I mean, every episode, but also the thing that I have forced Not you to listen to. the first 50. You are, cut, you are forbidden. I'll remove them before okay. you listen. Well, then at least the next one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, and uh, I will, of course, uh, lastly ask you to do our sign-off, which um, you had done on autographs, but I will uh, refresh your memory, which is music is life and life is good, if you could send us off with that. Music is life and life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.